fearsome being the screen has ever seen. Today, tonight, you, you, you could be Dracula's next victim. Something new, yet as old as time. Come on, Johnny. A date with the devil. Are you ready? He's ready. He's waiting to freak you out. Right out of this world. Died September the 18th, 1872. A hundred years ago to the day. You who witness it must swear before the name of the devil to keep it secret. Who knows about vampires, for God's sake? My grandfather died fighting a vampire. The most terrible, the most dangerous vampire of all time. The year is 1972, a leap year in horror, a vintage year for vampires, a time for the masters of horror to meet again in the 20th century. And welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I'm Jinx, your co-host. I'm sitting here with my co-hosts, Allie Chapel and Paul Farrell. Gang, how are you both this evening? Pretty Doing good. good, man. Doing good. Okay. All right. I'm not going to waste any time this evening. <laughs> Guess what? What's that? We what is guests. happening? We have guests. We have guests. That's Ooh. right. Not guests. Shut the door. <laughs> okay, easy. Easy. Everybody bring okay. it down. Sorry. Sorry. We have guests. This is the fullest house the Hammer Pub has seen yet. We have not one but two guests, which brings the pub up to five people. It is We don't do a lot of business here, but when we do, I, I think it's pretty great. And I'll just say right at the beginning to introduce, we have a writer, bartender, Malort enthusiast. I don't know that I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I'm going to say Malort enthusiast and Tomato Meter approved critic based in Chicago. Our first guest has appeared in the Chicago Reader, the AV Club, Fandor, Fangoria, and Daily Grindhouse. He is also currently facing... An unjust exile from Twitter. Everyone, please put your hands together for Mike Vanderbilt. Well, thank you very much for having me. It is Malort. You are pronouncing it uh, 100% uh, correctly. Uh, that, uh, what do some people say? Merlot. It's like, no, it's not a wine. It's just a shitty liquor that Chicago has <laughs> taken, taken as its own. I, uh, you know, I, I failed myself this evening. I hope you'll come back. Uh, hopefully everything goes well this evening because I would love to have you back on the show. If for no other reason, I wanted to grab a bottle of Malort to have and drink this oh. evening while watching Dracula AD 1972. Unfortunately, the time didn't work out for me. Um, admittedly, I am a little wary of it. I've seen the Guar video. I'm concerned, but, uh, but I do want to try it at some point. Yeah. The Guar video made the rounds again this past weekend because I was working Riot Fest again and, Guar plays Riot Fest every year, you know, big, uh, big punk rock, rock and roll festival here in Chicago. And every year uh, since that, well, I guess they take it back. I can't say every year. This is the first year. It made the rounds uh, since the last time because there was no festival last year due to, well, everything that happened. Uh, 2020. You got it. It's it. All right. Well, on that downer note, uh, damn pandemic. 
<laughs> I will. I will try Malort at some point. I am. I am decidedly. Going can you to get it on the East Coast? Do you know where you can find a bottle of it? Yeah. So that's the thing. I actually looked it up. It is nearby. I have to uh, hop over to Palmetto uh, to a wine store to be able to snag it. But uh, but yeah, no. It is. It is a stone's throw away. I just unfortunately didn't have a chance to grab it. You know, I may get one this week, and I'll just chart it on uh, on social media, and uh, I'll <laughs> I'll see how it goes. I'd tell you to tag me on Twitter, but well, you see how that's going. <laughs> Insanity. Are, are you coming back anytime soon? Is there any hint or preview that you can give us as to whether or not that's going to be undone at some point, or do you have no I, idea? I have absolutely no idea. I think that there's a chance that if I uh, send the, if I send in a proper form, that they might be able to uh, let the suspension go because it's for an asinine reason, right? Like it was for. I posted a video. Do you guys remember the viral video Hito Rick? Remember Hito Rick? The <laughs> ripping and a tear and the wild women, the wild women. Oh uh, yeah, vaguely, yeah. I posted it and there's he dances to a Beyonce song in it. The point of the video isn't the Beyonce song, but the Beyonce song is copywritten, obviously, and uh, the lawyers found it and took it down and uh, I'm suspended. Jeez. That's a lame oh, reason to get it's, I don't. It's like when people ask me, what did you do? I'm like, well, really nothing. Just kind of <laughs> stupid. Like, it's not even a very good story, which sucks. You know, well, if, if you got it. I am on TikTok. Get this suspended for something cool. Yeah, I, I am on TikTok now where I, I'm figuring it out. Where but you're I, dancing <laughs> to nothing but Beyonce songs. I, I feel like, go. yeah, and getting away with it. I feel like such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, on, on the one hand, like, if you got to get taken out by anybody, like, Beyonce isn't a half bad way to go, so. We be, but I don't, like, the thing about TikTok is I feel like a narc because I'm 41 years old, and, like, I, just, I feel like I'm just hanging around, like, the parking lot of the school or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sir, hey, again, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, I can't wait to dive into this movie and also why you wanted to talk this movie specifically when I when I mentioned the idea of Hammer Pub to you. I'm very curious to uh, see what you think about the film. Oh, All yeah. Right. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. One of my favorites. And a filmmaker and screenwriter known for his work on the Blade Brothers Dragula Halloween trick and So Far So Close, as well as the Midnight Mass podcast, which is relatively new. And you need to definitely seek that one out, making a return appearance to the show after far too many episodes away, sir. We've uh, we've missed you. Everyone applaud and welcome Michael Verratti back to the pub. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Now, uh, OK, we, we have is this is this OK? We'll do we'll, Michael and Mike. Is that all right? Uh, works for me if it works for Mike. Yeah, I, 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 that works for me. Rock on. Okay, now, uh, Mr. Vanderbilt, just to, uh, because you're relatively new to the show, just to let you know, um, Hammer Pub is such that we do a running commentary with the evening selection. We, uh, we queue up our media, whatever it may be, we do a countdown, and then we all press play together. Then we just chat along with films events. We can, uh, we can discuss what happens on screen, we can provide background, discuss themes, rank the film alongside the other movies in the franchise, or how it stands against other hammers, or we can just digress wildly and talk about whatever the <laughs> hell we care to, as spurred on by the movie. The talk... The conversation is the important thing. So that said, before we do that, we usually take about 45 minutes to chat about our recent watches. And because you are our brand new guest, we'll start with you. What is a title you've seen recently that you'd uh, you'd like to tell listeners about? Well, I don't know if you guys have talked about it yet, but I did watch Malignant, which was a, a big deal for me because I rarely watch anything that was made after 1997. <laughs> so, Oof. And I liked it. 
I liked it for the most part, except for that part where, I mean, have you guys seen it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I liked it for the part until it turned into a video game. <laughs> that was the only part that I didn't really do. Because there's that one segment, and you know where it is, where it starts to look like your typical 80, or uh, 2000s action movie. Uh, but other than that, three stars from me. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned 1997. The movie, in many ways, feels like it's from 1997, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. You could put that on a double feature with, like, Blade or something. I think it would play well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think myself and Ali and Paul were uh, were all kind of singing that movie's praises. Uh, and I don't I've seen a lot of people saying that it's their favorite one, too. I, I, I haven't seen enough of his stuff because I really didn't dig the Conjuring movies and I just never really checked anything out from there. Like I said, I mean, like we're watching a 1972, you know, Hammer film. This is more my wheelhouse. And <laughs> I, why, why don't you watch new movies, Mike? Well, because I'm I'm diving into the the vast Crown uh, Crown Pictures International <gasps> library. That's such I, a good series to go through. I, I'm too busy exactly. doing that to catch the new movies but i did catch malignant and Candyman, and Candyman, i was also disappointed in i think that was kind of um i, I think that was kind of a consensus here where i i think we all kind of appreciated the movie but we also found a lot of faults with it unfortunately yeah Candyman. that's uh that's uh, michael have you seen Candyman? i sure have what it, thumbs up thumbs down what did you think of it um, well, oddly enough, uh, so I have been in very, very deep, deep production recently. So I'm, I'm just now coming up for air and catching up on a lot of things because I was writing two different movies for two different production houses at the same time while we were uh, finishing up the new season of Dragula. And so this last weekend, I kind of binged a lot of stuff that I missed. And I actually watched Candyman and Malignant in a double feature. And what a really bizarre tonal double feature that is <laughs> because whatever your take on Candyman is if you watch that first and then follow it with malignant Candyman feels like the really fancy dinner party and mm -hmm. malignant feels like a wild night at sizzler so it's kind of like <laughs> I, I, and i'm not saying one is is better than the other i guess it just depends what kind of like outing you're looking for uh, of the two, I, I really did. Um, I liked Candyman because I liked how it was curated. I really liked how it leaned into the um, urban mythology and uh, kind of brought it back around to the original movie in in ways that take longer to explain it if, if you haven't seen it. But I, uh, I, I know that it's divisive. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I liked it, but I also understand why it wasn't for everybody. Whereas Malignant, I guess my thought on Malignant was, uh, you know, at least it reminded us of the importance of that special someone who always has your back. You know, I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's worth noting there is a Amazing. bottle of Malort to be spotted in Candyman. Oh, yeah. What? Well, yeah, it was shot in Chicago, so one of those set designers put it in there, and it was I was the I was literally doing the Leonardo pointing meme in the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I almost wonder if this is your, somehow like you influenced that happening, like just <laughs> your your love of Malort has has spread, you know. And, I, I, and, and you know, I guarantee you, I was levels. 
whoever was uh, whoever was doing production on it, you know, they, I've probably done a shot of Malort with them at one point in Chicago. So I. I've had Malort. I'm from but... I'm from a south suburb of Chicago, so I've had Malort. Oh, which uh, which uh, suburb? I'm from the Homewood Flossmore area. Oh hell yeah! My, my bike is still. Uh, I have a. I bought a vintage Peugeot that I took to Goodspeed, the bike shop out there. Oh at, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the yeah. beginning of the summer, and still haven't picked it up, so I'm still not going <laughs> to ride the bike. Nice. Yeah, that's you know, awesome. Lassen's Pub. Uh, yeah, lessons, man. Yeah. yeah. Next time I'm in town, I'm going to reach out to you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll have a good time for sure. Yeah, man. Sweet. I feel like I've never been to Chicago, but I feel like I need to go now just to it's do a, a shot of that while there. Chicago is so. a good place. <laughs> All right. So, Michael, you have seen Malignant and Candyman. Um, uh, Allie, what about you? What have you seen recently? Uh, you mean since we last talked two days ago? Um, I watched. You're not supposed to tell people that. <laughs> we talk every day. I know. Uh, we talked earlier today. Yeah. Um, I still have been doing my Buffy rewatch, and I also watched that new Netflix kids horror film, Nightbooks. Oh, I watched that too. Oh yeah, I saw that. It's cute. Like I'll watch anything Kristen Ritter's, and I think she is just so wonderful and so lovely. And, like, it was fun. It had a lot of, like, really, like, interesting set design pieces. And mm-hmm. I feel like if I was a kid, I'd be, like, really psyched that this was a movie for me. Can I ask, where does it land as far as – I've seen the trailer, and I, I, I'm i a child of the 80s, and I miss kids' movies that had a bit of an edge to them. Like, is, is Nightbooks a little more dangerous, like a little more maybe – Goonies or the Monster Squad, or are we talking like '90s Disney TV movie? Would you say, as far as the tone goes? I, I mean, the room. I think uh, <laughs> I think that you know one thing that's important to know about Nightbooks is it was produced by Sam Raimi, and it is not shy with its horror. I, I think there were things oh, in it cool. that were were genuinely terrifying. And those little mini creature things, I can't, the, the shredders or whatever they're called, I thought those were insanely creepy and well designed. Yeah. And like that whole yeah, thing I, with the, the plants and everything, I thought that was such an interesting set piece to just incorporate. And also completely forgot it was a Sam Raimi thing. So that makes it just like even a little bit, a little bit more better. <laughs> yeah. With no spoilers, I will say there is a thing in the third act that is very, to me, drag me to hell reminiscent. And uh, it was fun to see that through the lens of a children's film, you know. Oh, is the is the lead character a terrible person? Uh, well, well, I mean, they're they're, they're children. <laughs> they're children. Yeah, they children. Are children. Uh, don't even don't start with us, Jinx. No, I I, uh, I was going to say I watched it. I watched it with my kids, um, and my my daughters loved it. Um, my ten year old especially really loved it. Uh, my seven year old was utterly terrified by it um and they and they watch horror like i've shown them a good amount of stuff but no i mean i would say that it gave me very strong like witches vibes like the witches yeah um Uh, uh, it it very it feels yeah it does it does have a lot of sort of danger to it The, the stakes feel high um, I totally agree that the last act goes like full on Raimi, uh, 100%, uh, really? to the point where, yeah, I was dragged me to hell was alive and well in that movie. I totally agree with that. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. All right. Good deal. 
Um, yeah. I, yeah, and I should note that I'm not bashing uh, uh, Disney TV movies. It's just totally, come on, there's a big difference. No, Under Wraps is one of the greatest movies ever. And that's yeah, a Disney yeah. TV movie. I thought I heard it was getting remade. <laughs> it is getting remade, and yet the first one's still not on Disney+. Plus. What are we doing? I mean, yeah, that might that might be the, uh, the kick in the ass they need to actually throw it up. I'm just us. saying. I had I to only, buy it. I had to buy Under Ramps. <laughs> I only really remember Mr. Boogity. Mr. Oh, Mr. Boogity. It's a classic. And That's on and There was two of yeah. them, right? Yeah. yeah, Bride of Boogity. And they're both on Disney+. Plus, and yet no Under Ramps. <laughs> Halloween Town's good, too. The first Halloween Town. I like. Yeah. All right, Paul, how about you? What have you seen in the last uh, um, two days? <laughs> <laughs> well, I watched night books. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, I'll talk about um, sort of a classic movie that I watched uh, with my daughter just for fun. Uh, uh, so we watched Child. I showed my 10-year-old Child's Play. Oh. Uh, which, look, I, I questioned whether or not to do it because... Um, a slight digression. When I when I was young, uh, Child's Play was the movie that sort of scarred me. Um, I was six, and I caught a segment of it. I've told the story a million times, but I caught a segment of it um, at my uncle's house while I was spending the night. And in my kid-addled brain where I was in and out of sleep, the last thing I had seen was like a segment from the news, maybe like a commercial or something. And then I saw the scene where... Chucky doesn't have his batteries, but he's talking to the mother. And in my head, I thought it was like a news segment. Like the news was reporting on a doll that was alive. And so I was like 100% convinced it was real. And it was like happening in homes. And I just like had this freak out. I wouldn't sleep. I screamed. I made, I made my uncle like call my parents to come pick me up and stuff. So it was this horrible thing. And I was like terrified of Ch- Chucky to this day still really freaks me out because of that. Like he's just the one that gets to me. So of course I was like, we can't show our child this. And uh, my wife, my my wife was insistent that uh, she thought she would like it. And my daughter really wanted to watch it. And she's been kind of getting into horror. So I was like, okay, if you, if you want to watch this, I'll sit down with you and watch it. Um, so yeah, we watched child's play and it was really fascinating to see her sort of react to, because I would say this was probably one of her first like full fledged horror films. She's watched a lot of those like gateway horror films. She's seen like The Gate. Um, she's seen. She has watched Fright Night. I guess that's probably in the same I, realm as. Uh, I always Child's say Play. Fright Night, despite for the you know the nudity or whatever. Like that's an appropriate film for like younger. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Fans. I, I yeah. totally agree with that. Yeah, and so and she's I, seen. <laughs> she's been exposed to like creature effects and special effects. The the other thing I do with her that I think really helps is we always watch like the special features. So we always like sit down at the end and watch like how they made it. Um, I also uh, gave her Heather Wixon's new book um, on creature effects and design. So she could sort of start to understand how that stuff gets made. Cause I think that helps uh, her sort of digest what's going on on screen and makes her think about it differently. So at the end of the movie, you know, her initial reaction was like, I want to watch the uh, the puppeteers and like how they made it and like how they made Chucky move. And she was like super interested in, uh, you know, how that all worked. But there were certain sequences where she was watching through her fingers. You know, she was like covering her eyes and I was like, oh, you're going to miss it. She's like, well, I'm looking through my fingers. I just need to be able to close them <laughs> just in case, oh, particularly when. Yeah, like it was like when Chucky was like uh like sort of a burned husk in the in the final act that really freaked her out and 
anytime it was like weirdly the POV shot stuff where you weren't sure what was going to happen with him. She also got really interested in like the mythology of it, like the, the voodoo stuff. And she was like, well, how did he become a doll and how did this work? And I need to know more about this. So like she started getting really, really sort of interested in the lore right away. Um, so it, it went really well. And, uh, She's now asking to watch like more child's play movies. And I'm like, you can watch some of them. <laughs> I, think, I think some of the child's play movies get a little bit adult for, for you, but uh, we can, C, we can do a couple more. C <laughs> might be a rough watch for a 10 year old. For a 10 year old. Yeah. I, I, I want her to see them all eventually, but the, you know, there's a time and a place, but yeah. So, so that was a fun sort of sharing with my, my daughter, the love of horror with child's play. I love that. I love that you're helping your daughter become a burgeoning horror fan. That's so cool. Although it would have been neat, like at the very end of the movie, if you'd sort of connected to your own childhood by just leaning over and saying, you know, this is based on a true story. <laughs> uh, well, there was a newscast you know, that I saw. The problem is I'm, I'm such a broken record and I'm so sort of like uh, basic in that way that I, I tell that story so much that when we, <laughs> when we got to the battery scene, Audrey was literally like, oh my gosh, this is the battery scene. This is the one that scared you. <laughs> And she was so excited to see the thing that like scarred me. And she, and, and she's like, this isn't that bad. What were yeah. you so scared? <laughs> Cause I had like, you know, hyped it up so much and I'm like, but it, I was like, but you have to imagine not knowing what this was. So I kind of probably ruined that for on accident, but she was very entertained to see the scene that, that scared her father so much. I love it. Um, yeah, so it's only been two days since we last recorded. Um, I haven't seen anything. I picked up uh, picked up the new Vestron release of Dementia 13, which is the director's cut of Francis Ford Coppola's first movie, it's which fascinates me. Yeah. I, know, I, just, I know that it's out there, but I didn't know that there was a director's cut of this picture. You know what's crazy? I, um, I've never seen any version of it, and I love Coppola, but for whatever reason, I, I think it was partly like how it was available. Like I could never find a copy of the movie that wasn't oh. available on like a 50 movie like region, you know, or rather yes. uh, like public domain set, you know, so that always kind of put me off. And so getting this nice shiny VHS in the bargain bin at the Walgreens. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. It's and, and it was always the same picture, you know, which was kind of hokey, you know? Um, so I'm kind of excited to have the Blu-ray, but at the same time, like I, I get a little nervous about directors going back and tinkering with their work because I got to say like, you know, he, he's brilliant, but when it comes to Coppola, like, I, I gotta say, I prefer the, the the first cut of Apocalypse Now. I think it's a masterpiece, and I think every subsequent version that he's done, like the Redux, and isn't there, like, a Redux 2.0 or whatever the hell? Like, you know, it's, it's still good, but just not quite as good, you know? So I, I still don't know if I'm getting the best possible version of this movie for my, uh, for my first watch. But uh, nevertheless, I'm still kind of excited to dive in. Has anyone else here seen the movie? Good, bad, thumbs up, thumbs down? Uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, he's definitely, uh, it's the beginning of his career. I, it was one of those that used to play in all of those like late night cable packages that horror hosts <laughs> with the network affiliates would screen all the time. Um, and so I probably saw it. I'm, I'm sure Elvira screened Dementia 13. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, and just, I, I grew up in the Pittsburgh area. So chilly Billy, most likely, and you know, it, it was just one of those that if you didn't go to bed at a certain hour, it and carnival of souls and like the killer shrews and anything that they could really get their mitts on, uh, 
so my, my memory of it is jumbled and is probably more, uh, you know, the brain that wouldn't die than actually dementia 13. But <laughs> I do remember seeing it. Good deal. Well, <clears throat> hey, so unfortunately, I did not watch that. But uh, instead of wrecking a, you know, recommending a movie, I can recommend. By the way, I am slurring already. So I should note, I've been a teetotaler for about the past oh, six months. I just started drinking again. And um I found that I'm uh, I'm I'm not as alcohol resistant as I once was. I'm I'm like one drink in and I can already hear myself slurring. So uh, apologies in advance for what I'm going to sound like by the end of this thing. <laughs> uh, it's going to be fun. Anyway, um, I don't have a movie to talk about, but I do have, if you all will allow me, a comic book that I can recommend to folks if anyone is interested. Sure. sure. Do so do we, one, I guess I should ask here: Do we have any comic book readers? Heck yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. Rock on. All right. Have any of you heard of Red Room? Red Room. No. It's relatively new. It is an indie comic by uh, a writer and artist named Ed Pisker. Um, so it is this crazy anthology comic book with uh, gritty artwork. Uh, it's it, it, The artwork, I swear, there's something kind of cartoony about it, but also kind of grungy in a weird way. And it looks like... Uh, it's kind of fashioned to almost look like newspaper print in a way, almost like you drew on top of like newspaper. It's so it has like a grit and grain to it that's just kind of great. Uh, imagine a comic version of uh, somebody trying to do like a faux grindhouse look, if that makes any sense. And uh, it concerns a program that employs sort of all of these various colorful killers who uh, who torture and kill people in the uh, titular room in front of cameras, performing for people on the dark web who. Uh, who pay a great deal of money to watch these horrible events unfold. Um, they each have costumes. They have signature kills that they like to perform for their fans. It's uh, it's all pretty disturbing, but also kind of wickedly funny at times. But um, I don't know. The, the interesting thing to me is when the comic book actually sort of dives into their backstories and who these people are when they aren't, uh, aren't killing for the Red Room. And uh, the series is three issues in. It's uh, it's about to finish up its first four-issue arc, and I think it's well worth seeking out, like whether or not you pick them up in floppies or maybe the upcoming trade paperback. And there's already a second arc being planned. But um, And in fact, if you have a nearby comic shop, hit them up and see if they still have issue zero, which was created for uh, Free Comic Book Day. It's a great setup issue, and uh, it... Oh, somebody crashed. Is everybody okay? <laughs> yeah. And it, uh, it shouldn't cost you a penny. Uh, I will say the best way I could probably sort of uh, sell the series is that it's... Um, imagine if Rob Zombie remade Eli Roth's Hostel and Robert Crumb <laughs> did the comic book adaptation. That's about as close as I can get to describing what it's like to read this thing. But, uh, but yeah, I guess it comes up from... Okay, I'm sold. <laughs> All right. And that's that's pretty much all I have now. We brought it in a little bit under time. Uh, would anyone like to throw out one last movie they'd like to recommend or should we go ahead and dive into Dracula? Uh, well, I don't. Well, I mean, unless you want to hear about my massive rewatch of Cougar Town, I think it's time oh to God, dig it. Cougar Town forever. <laughs> right. Let's it's talk so good. And it got thrown up on Disney after I bought all the seasons on Google Play. It was a travesty, but love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about a, a truly cozy television series. I, it's so I, cozy. I, I, you know, have a emotional moment for every wine glass funeral. So. <gasps> right? <laughs> All also, right. I just watched Busy Phillips forever. Like, she's perfect. I'm sad that her, like, little late night show didn't, like, continue more. 
Yes. Actually, you know what? This is it. I'm I'm about to steer us into some Courtney Cox territory because I yes. see I see on the internet. Obviously, horror fans are all lit up on Scream, and that's that's a thing. And of course, of course, of course. And then there's the whole Friends thing. But when is the Cougar Town Renaissance? When are we going to recognize that perhaps yeah. the greatest work that Courtney Cox ever did did was on this show where she just drank wine and had a good time? That's, yeah, it's so great for I'm six sorry. years. Also- more so than Masters of the Universe. <laughs> well, if we're going down that route, Jinx, clearly the best, <laughs> clearly the best Courtney Cox vehicle was Misfits of Science in the 80s. Oh, jeez. Ooh, wow. Fair, deep fair. cut. That's a deep cut. Maybe like I've it. been on the Courtney Cox train for a while. I, I Maybe think you I have. <laughs> but it's true. Like, I why think you just proved that you're an authority in this topic, and we should really listen to you. I think Cougar Town, I agree, by the way. I love. I freaking love Cougar Town. I'm so happy that we're talking yeah. about it right now. It's I'll tell you expected, what. But I'm Bill happy Lawrence just took home a bunch of Emmys for Ted Lasso. Why are we not praising the other Bill Lawrence show? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Bill Lawrence for life. So you're telling me I need to um, <clears throat> seek out Cougar Town? Yeah, it's out. set in Florida. Of anyone here, you should be the one watching yeah. it. Yeah, I think because I'm in Florida, I have a pretty great excuse for wanting to uh, avoid anything what Florida was, set. Oh, no, anything escapist. <laughs> Please, yes. I. We're about to watch a movie set in England, and that's uh, that's that's about my speed, given that I'm currently stuck in the cell hole. You know, um, <laughs> I did this, watch something that's a good one. Did you anyone ever seen City of the Dead from 1960? Oh yeah, with Christopher yeah. Lee. Yeah, mm-hmm. that yeah. one's gem. I just caught up with that uh, last week. I think it's on Shutter right now, and I really dug that one. Rock. Now you mentioned earlier you're diving into the uh, the Crown International. Do you have any gems from that sort of run that you would like to throw out to people? Uh, like if they, they they were to pick out one movie from there, which one should it be? A 1978's Terror which we are screening at the Music Box of Horrors drive-in with Suspiria as part of our rip-off double features. I was going to say, that's like the English Suspiria that uh, Vinegar Syndrome put out, right? Yes, it is. Uh, Norman J. Warren directed lots of scantily clad British babes getting offed in various colorful ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thumbs up. Love that one. Yeah, that movie's a blast. I, uh, I I did a weird Vinegar Syndrome double feature when I saw that movie for the first time with, uh, I mean, no connection whatsoever otherwise, but uh, I watched it with Cutting Class, and uh, that was a fun night. <laughs> loved, them, loved them both. Well, as far as Crown International Pictures go, and applicable to tonight, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Dracula's Dog. Oh, Zoltan, the Hound of oh, Dracula. Zoltan. Yeah. yeah, I like that. AKA, indeed. I, I've heard of this movie. I'm ashamed to admit I've never seen it. It's not a movie so much that you watch, but experience. <laughs> yeah, you, you just kind of let it happen. You let it happen. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, there's a Kino Lorber Blu-ray of that. I yeah, think. and it looks nicer than that movie really has any business to. Agreed. Um, it's good. There are so many Dracula films that I feel that I still need to seek out. Uh, I remember when Bram Stoker's Dracula came out, there was that great magazine that I think Starlog put out that was entirely Dracula-centric. And I swear, there's something like 300 damn films in that magazine, you know, charting the entire history of Dracula in movies. And I've seen maybe two-thirds of them. And God, how many movies have we had since? Well, I mean, it's true because the character is in the public domain, which means any Yahoo can write a Dracula movie. And I should know I've written two. So it's <laughs> it is it is something that really anyone can can do if they're so moved and love the character or have a bone to pick with the character, honestly. 
I love it. All right. Well, I tell you what, um, let's go ahead and dive into the movie. Now, depending on how you watch this, whether it be uh, streaming or on DVD or Blu-ray, I believe Warner Archive put out a nice Blu-ray. Of course, it's been on DVD many times over the years. I'm currently, even though I own the Blu-ray, it's just simpler for my setup to go ahead and stream the damn thing on Amazon Prime. Same here. (laughs) Uh, Let's go ahead and fast forward through the really pretty uh, Warner Brothers shield I hate and let's change to Warner Brothers Shield because I'm sure the Saul Bass one is supposed to be on this one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they did put the horror of Dracula like ending music over top of it. So it's like, you know, somebody was trying a little bit, but, yeah. you know. Warner uh, Brothers, I think, is the worst as far as not putting the original uh, production logos on theirs. I, I the, think they're the most egregious. Is anybody watching the Warner Archive Blu-ray? I am. I just got through all of my piracy is is not a victimless crime. Uh, you wouldn't well, the, steal a the, coffin. Right. Sorry. I, I will confess this is not a movie that I needed to rewatch in preparation for this episode because <laughs> as Jinx knows, which is why I, I think I was summoned to the pub tonight, is uh, this is a movie I have seen many, 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 many times. I, I, I think the last time you're on um which was, uh, what was it, Dracula's Risen from the Grave? Was that the last time? Yeah, and you, if you're about you to here? say I hijacked the conversation to instead talk about Dracula 8062, <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> yeah. and I was going to say, I'm pretty sure we spent a good amount of time talking about this movie instead. Because I was like, you know, uh, this one gets real preachy, so let's talk about disco occultism and go. Uh, but I... Um, no, it's it's true. And I wasn't even drinking that episode. So that just tells you how much I am ready for this. Where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. <laughs> Good deal. All right, let's go ahead and get to the very first frame of the movie proper. You should start to see a Hammer production in red letters just start to fade in. Listeners out there, as we always do, we're going to do a countdown. Uh, it'll be five, four, three, two, one, And play on play. Go ahead and press play as you would. And we will dive in. Is everybody ready? Indeed. Yep. Yes. All right, here we go in five, four, three, two, one, and play. A hammer production. I got to say, these leaves leaves blowing around today being the first day of fall, I'm kind of happy. I'm grinning ear to ear right now. It's nice. (laughs) You know, there's uh, a PA right off screen. Hammer drinking game. There is a carriage coming through the countryside. Everybody do a shot. A, car- a carriage oh, coming through the countryside. Oh no, we're going to get so drunk. <laughs> yeah, a carriage coming through the countryside, mind you, in mid-afternoon with a blue gel thrown over the camera. <laughs> Solid the, in the seventies, the day for night shooting got so egregious. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, I do love it. But yeah, it's 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 very brazen at that point. It's over. I, I like. There's the... no reason he should burn up. You know. No, no. I, I like that this scene, you know, for as modern as the movie ends up being, I like that they give us one little taste of the sort of classic Hammer, you know, Dracula movie sequence that we all kind of know and love before thrusting us into the future. It's a little James Bondy, right? Like we get to open in an adventure in progress. And yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not mad about it. This whole mm. like wa- wagon wheel with Tootsie death. Now, it's Michael, exciting. you mentioned that you, you love this movie. Mike, I know I want to talk about why you picked this movie specifically here in a minute. But while we're on this scene, before we dive into that, I just want to ask everybody here, because Michael and I have talked about this a little bit. But um, 
How do we feel about this movie and its place within the continuity of the larger franchise? Do you think it's full on reboot or can you make it work for yourself and make it fit into the continuity of all of the previous movies? I'm so glad you asked because I have this conspiracy wall ready to go. And I have two. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, no, I think this totally works in the continuity because we can just assume that this falls somewhere after Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires timeline wise. And uh, Van Helsing is back in Europe and Dracula has been resurrected again for some reason because that happens a lot. And oh, this yeah. is just sort of the end of that. And it also it, it tracks because he's older and we know from Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires that Van Helsing has a kid. And so it would then make sense that Lorimer, who we meet later, would be the descendant of his child, who would be like, is an adult around now. So, yeah, I, I think it all like it I'm all... going to guess I'm going to say that Dracula was resurrected by a dog peeing on his grave, like in the Nightmare on <laughs> Elm Street 4. You know what? That's yes. Flaming urine. I think that's likely. The, I, the only thing that makes it tough is the fact that this movie, this opening is apparently set in 1872 and Horror of Dracula is set in 1885. And the only way I made that make sense for myself as a fan all these years is like, you know what? I look back at all the Hammer movies and I'm like, maybe these are just stories being told by, uh, you know, uh, uh, historians who, you know, maybe screw up the uh, the, the the dates sometimes. But watching it again and follow with me here because this is uh, I, I got to make a couple of leaps. We never find out Van Helsing's first name in all the previous movies. And in the book, the Stoker book, he is called Abraham. In this one, we have Lawrence Van Helsing at the very beginning who uh, who dies. So maybe there were two Van Helsings. Maybe there were brothers. Maybe that explains why the Van Helsing from Horror of Dracula is so dead set on, uh, you know, maybe going after Dracula in the events of horror. Maybe this is a prequel, this opening scene, to everything we've seen before. Like I said, it's a bit of a stretch, but I'm sticking to it. To work. Like all great horror franchises, it requires you to create some convoluted backstory to make all of the entries work together. Like, exactly. That's that's the one of the best things about being a fan of a franchise is, is coming up with the conspiracy theories to make them all make sense. I I, I would agree with that, too. Now, I Mike, always, yes. Out of any Hammer movie you might have chosen, uh, because I didn't ask you a while ago, and I remember you zeroed in on two specifically. So out of those two, why AD 1972? I love the idea of bringing the vampire myth to modern times because that was something that really wasn't happening yet. Like there's a very small list of movies that, uh, you know, took the vampire mythos into the modern age at that time. Like you could use, you could say son of Dracula in 43, uh, blood of Dracula from 57, which was part of Herman Cohen's teenage horror cycle that included, I was a teenage werewolf and I was a teenage Frankenstein, but I love that this is kind of a reaction to the success of Count Yorga Vampire, which is another one of my favorite vampire flicks from 1970. Yeah, I love both Yorga films. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I did a little bit of research on the movie, and I, I saw that, that like part of the push for Hammer was to do a modern-day Dracula film because of Yorga. And um, uh, it looks like uh, they had actually went to... Um, Anthony Hines, you know, the classic hammer writer, he was approached to write the script and apparently he uh, he outright refused to write a modern day Dracula film. So that's why they ultimately went with, uh, I think, Don Helton uh, was the guy who ultimately wrote the script, who initially pitched a story called Dracula Chelsea 
uh, and the title evolved to Dracula Chelsea 1972, which eventually became the shooting title Dracula Today, which eventually became Dracula 80 1972. So it had a bit of a journey, this movie. And as, a, as an Anglophile, like, I love all the, the hip uh, 70s styles of this one. And this cut is great. Into oh, the yeah. yeah. The smash cut to the airplane is fantastic. And the music that kicks in, like, <laughs> it's super, like they're, they're uh, saying this is not your father's hammer horror film. Right yeah. I love the music in this movie. I actually, after rewatching it this last time, I uh, popped over to iTunes, which unfortunately there's a huge dearth of like hammer music to be found on iTunes. But I was delighted to see that uh, at some point after the last time I had checked, they do have a uh, 80, 1972's entire score on there. And I, uh, I nabbed this main theme because I mean, it's very, it's very like seventies cop movie or even black exploitation yeah. flick music. You know, oh, it's it's kind of, I literally exact same thing on Spotify. I like bookmark this yeah. like soundtrack. I'm like, this is my driving music from now on. <laughs> With this kind of music in like a hammer movie in a weird way, it kind of reminded me of that music in the, uh, the final act of the wicker man when Howie saves uh, Rowan, or at least he thinks he does, but it's not as like, weirdly enough, it's not as incongruous here as it is there. I don't think. Well, they really want you to know this is swing in London, you know, we're, we're in it now. <laughs> yeah. It just, it feels like unlike a lot, like pretty much any other Jack the movie there's been in the cycle. It's just like, we're, we're going to have some fun here. Like we, we just, we want to have a good time. Right. This isn't the, you know, the movie sort of opens with the Dracula, you know, theme. And then <laughs> we we kick into. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We just add words to it. Dracula, you know what I'm talking about. And then it. over here, uh, now all of a sudden we've got this like intense, you know, super fun, like swinging music. And it's just like, yeah, don't worry about that stuff. We're just going to have a good we're going to go and have a good time. This is this is for a different generation. We're you know, this is. This is the evolution of that. Um, and I, I think that, uh, that that was kind of a refreshing surprise the first time I watched this movie, like to, to see it go in a different direction. Uh, to be at this party, by the way, um, mm. where this is the, the band Stone Ground, which uh, we were introduced to in the credits. Uh, <laughs> but what, what I like is how appalled oh. these British upper class people are by just Why are they even there. Well, I think it's their home and they got yes. uh, they got put upon by these hippies, you know, as as hippies do, according to cinema. And yeah. um, but honestly, I feel like I want to party with all of these people, including the shocked older people, because they're adding an ambiance that I don't get. <laughs> in really my normal, yeah. <laughs> Does anyone here know the story behind Stone Ground? They were they were a uh, they were a California band. They came from Concord, California. They had appeared in the concert film Medicine Ball Caravan in '71, another Warner Brothers production. So I think they were on a Warner Brothers label, and that's how they got in there in Dracula AD. And it was supposed to be the Faces, from what I understand. That's what yeah. I had read. It blew yeah. me away that they were going to shoot in September. They were under contract, like it had already been signed that they were going to appear in the movie. And for whatever reason, they were replaced by Stone Ground. And then what was it? Two, three months later, uh, their breakthrough best-selling album hit. And it's like, oh, Hammer, bad choice. <laughs> yeah, this, this film would definitely be held in higher regard, I think, if Rod Stewart was in this. <laughs> yeah. Instead, but... we, get a, we get Alligator Man. The thing is, cool like, too, with, <laughs> yeah. with Rod Stewart at the beginning, is Dracula even threatening anymore? Like, that's the question. <laughs> it's a very good question. 
<laughs> because Rod Stewart is, in fact, forever young. And uh, <laughs> I had I had tickets to a Rod Stewart concert and he canceled and I've never seen him. And I may or may not have never let it go. <laughs> That's a vendetta right there. You're like, how dare you? <laughs> That's right. I, I, saw, I saw Rod Stewart. I saw him live. How uh, was that? And... Tell me, because I didn't get to yeah. go and see him. Um. <laughs> He, he was he was good actually. <laughs> he was pretty lively. I saw him live at a uh, uh, at a at a zoo function <laughs> at the St. Louis Zoo at like an after hours uh, sort of dinner evening dinner with music sort of thing, and he performed for the people that were there. Oh my god! So it was this, actually like a fairly so small cool. group. This is my kind of digression though, because I live for these like. <laughs> I no, honestly, I live for these weird like rock concerts that are not actually concerts but are, you know, like not at a traditional venue. Like mm, I saw yes, Blue Oyster yeah. Cult at a barbecue. Like, you know, th- and that's that's true. It was like it was like a cookout that's in Pittsburgh. Awesome. Can you please tell us everything about that? Because that is a story that needs to be told, I think. I mean, like, I wish that there was like some epic like episode of supernatural reason that this occurred, but like literally the story is the sentence. I was at this barbecue. <laughs> happen to perform um no and it's just like stuff like that that like you know rod stewart at the zoo lita ford in the produce section of you know aldi like i don't know i just my favorite random band i saw at the zoo was huey lewis and the news and i i yelled at them to play uh power of love because i you know because oh, I'm basic a, a and I cut, love, I yeah, right. Yeah, deep right. Cut. And I was like, I was like, oh, Back to the Future. And I actually wanted them to play the uh, the alternate version of Power of, of Love that plays on the radio at the end, where he's like, "Let's go back in time," <laughs> like the the like really lame sort of Back to the Future version of that song. And he actually uh, reacted to my request, and on stage. Because they had like a makeshift stage and he went to the mic and he's like, you know, when I wrote that song for that movie, he's like, little did I know that I would have to play it every fucking time I'm in front of an audience. (laughs) (laughs) And he just sounded so exhausted and annoyed. And then he went immediately into the song (laughs) and he played it. (laughs) Oh, that's Sweet. But he had a lot, but it was, it was actually pretty funny. But yeah, yeah so that, record, that was my Huey Lewis story. Their first record is worth uh, checking out because it's, uh, they're just kind of, they were just kind of an LA power pop band and then they made good. And then, you know, MTV got a hold of them and I think they kind of leaned into the cheese a little bit, but that first yeah. record pretty fucking awesome. Oh yeah. No, they're, they're wait, they're is good. that sports or was sports later? Uh, sports is later. It's a self-titled one. I just I I think American Psycho forever ruined them for me. Like I love them, but I'll never not be able to think of American Psycho when hearing Understood. literally any any song by them. So uh, I don't um, know. Do you think uh, you guys see all these like uh, secret concerts? That's fucking cool. I feel I, like the closest thing I have to like an interesting like show is like there's this band called like the Wedding Band, and it's <laughs> Kurt Hammett from Metallica and the bass player, what's his name, Rob. Trulio, and then like the drummer from Queens of the Stone Age did like this weird, very small like at a music studio in Toronto show, and it was really cool. Sounds fun. Yeah, but it's yeah. A pow- that's a super group. That's awesome. 
Yeah, I never. That's probably the closest thing I've had to like a really interesting, like smaller show. I um, I I'm I've never been to a concert. What? No, you're You've lying. Never been to a concert. I've never been not to one, and it's just I don't know. When I was really? young, I didn't have Are much of an interest, and now that I'm older, I'm just like I don't know. That, like not even by weird. accident, you were never into produce section. And... <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you what, I, I, I did do this. Uh, I cut Masters of the Universe live in the mid-80s when I was like four years old. That's about it. And it was I, I saw the, I saw the Ewoks ice capades in that vein. If you're, oh, if you're man. Oh, wow. Well, you I'm like... jealous. I'm here to tell you that one of the best concert VHS that you could ever pick up was the Ninja Turtles coming out of their shells tour. So... <laughs> It's so that funny you said that ice? because I did. I own that VHS and it is wonderful. <laughs> did Vanilla Ice actually make an appearance in the concert film, or was he just like on the the, the cassette tape that came out? That uh, no, because he was he. Vanilla Ice has his cameo at the end of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Two: Secret of the Ooze, where they perform the Go Ninja Go Ninja Go song. Yes, um, and wow. then Vanilla Ice largely steered clear of on-screen appearances except for his own motion picture cool as yeah, ice, cool as ice. Yeah. <laughs> which was cool shot oh, by Janusz Kaminski oh no yes the trope the director of photography of Schindler's List <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that oh goodness I remember it's, constantly it's passing that VHS tape up in uh I think my local uh um uh, grocery store is called pick and save you know it was there was a great time in the early 90s when you could throw a rock and hit about five VHS mom and pops and then like three comic book stores and uh they actually had this little section next to uh weirdly enough I think like the produce section where you could walk in and uh they just had the most bizarre like uh, VHS selection ever, but they had cool as ice. And uh, I remember even as a kid, I walked by it and sort of studied it, stared at it, considered it, and ultimately just said, no. Nah, See, nah, little did you know, in asking me to come talk about this amazing movie, you were also going to get a scholarly essay on Courtney Cox and the filmography of Vanilla Ice. Uh, <laughs> but I, I did want to. why you're a great guest. To point out this scene here, what I love about this kind of tra uh, trajectory of story is yeah, they're at this party that the upper class British hoity-toity people did not approve of. So they're like, oh, our party's busted up. What should we do? I guess the occult. And um, <laughs> I mean, but, that's legit. <laughs> what is legit? But what I do think is really interesting about this particular scene and how like Johnny Alucard here is kind of selling them on the idea is I would be very shocked to discover that this was not in some way influential to Clive Barker, especially in writing Hellraiser later, because literally this whole scene is about utilizing the occult for some sort of pleasurable purpose and it's kind of that clandestine you know this is the first time we've really seen this in in the hammer verse the idea of engaging with satanism and dark magic for just a good time i mean we, we've seen it we're like it, for for gain or avarice or wealth and you know taste the blood of dracula it's those like rich guys who really have nothing else going on and this was like the last big thrill but it's because capitalism took them only so far but this is just a group of people that are like yeah it feels good so why don't we summon the devil and i think that yeah. there's something very proto influential here going on there has to be something with barker and that idea and hammer i think you're completely right it's funny just uh paul alley correct me if i'm wrong here was it two episodes ago uh with 
was it Twins of Evil? Count Karnstein. Um, yeah, that movie is a blast. I love it so much. It's my favorite Karnstein movie. Oh, yeah. But he he sort yeah. of does the same thing. He has this speech uh, right before he uh, sacrifices a woman to bring back uh, Carmilla or Mercala, I guess, at that point. And uh, I swear, like the monologue that he gives, it might have very well been Frank from Hellraiser that gives it. Like when he's talking about like his goals and wants. And I'm, I think we all had that conversation where it's like, you think you think Barker was a Hammer fan growing up? Is that possible? I he can definitely see it. He was definitely a Hammer fan. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely gothicism intermingling in, in Hellraiser, you know, certainly with it, with how it's set up and, and just the look and feel of the movie. And then, yeah, I, the, in general, this movie kind of has that sort of like proto-satanic panic element to it where it's like, oh, I don't I don't want my teenager to go out and do drugs because they're going to dabble in the occult. Um, you know, the kind of the stuff that showed up in the eighties that this feels very, very, uh, influential to a lot of that stuff. God, um, remember when people were up worried that their kids were going to dabble in the occult? <laughs> oh, that's like, hilarious. Like me, <laughs> meanwhile, I had a relative recently that was like on Facebook that was just like, well, we all know that when the antichrist shows up, there'll be homosexual. And I'm like, I hope so. Like, I you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I, like, <laughs> We should be so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they've given the Bible that close a reading. If that's 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 what they landed on, um, I don't think people oh. have ever actually. It's I, this country is overrunning with people who call themselves Christians or anything, but um, but it's like yeah, I mean hell, I listened to Ozzy Osbourne in the eighties when I was a kid. I only killed like two goats. Like that's not that big of a deal. <laughs> How many of the goats did you eat though? Like while they were still alive. Personal question, Paul. It's yeah. you're overstepping, well, crossing the line. Sorry, <laughs> now, yeah, it's something I wanted to ask you all because this was kind of a uh, an eye opener for me. Yeah, when it's, I a, watched it's this... a bad hat, Jinx. It's not a good hat, <laughs> <laughs> but it matches the trim of the car, <laughs> like it's it matches the purple of the vehicle. You know, vehicle is Why beautiful. do we have more cars like that? That's gorgeous. <laughs> That's 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 oh, okay. Dear, that hairstyle is worse than that hat. Well, well that hairstyle is not hair. That's a wig. That is a wig. Oh, if yeah. ever I saw one, and I work with them, really short the hair with gross. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite a wig. It does look like she has like a short wig pulled over her actual hair, like a hat. Yeah, this yeah. was a poor choice. <laughs> It's, it it's... looks like the hair that Leslie Nielsen wears and Dracula dead and loving it, like when he pulls it off. Yeah. See how uh, I brought it back, Dracula dead and loving it? Every episode we'll I do, bring at least that back. <laughs> it deserves all the mentions. Um, when I watch this movie, I, I, I just take it for granted that, hey, this is what this is this is what it was like in 1972 there. And uh, it was kind of surprising to me to read in the uh, the Hammer story, the, the Hearn Barnes book. They noted that the perspective on youth culture that's presented in this movie is actually about a decade out of date. Like these kids who are. Uh, as the book notes, they're drinking coffee in the cavern bar. They're discussing jazz spectacular tickets at Albert Hall. There's dialogue like, she has a new batch of discs for the stereo. Some way out stuff just came in from Copenhagen. Like, points to these youths as more like coming from the early 60s, which is something that, you know, American me, I don't think I ever would have picked up on. No. And I choose to believe otherwise. I choose to believe that this is exactly what 1972 was like there. 
think a lot of the style is very 1972. Like the youth style for sure. But this was in books, it seems like this is the style. <laughs> I like that, you know, Cushing feels sort of out of place, you know, just as out as out of place as Dracula feels in this in this world. Yeah. Like he feels like he's from a different time. And that kind of works to the movie's advantage. I'm so glad he came back for it. They could have gotten away with casting anybody else's Lorimer because He's a descendant, but I'm 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 glad that we actually get him for the full movie. And yeah. uh, I did a bit of reading and said that Hammer brought him back to sort of uh, help Warner's chances with it by having Cushing and Lee in a Dracula movie for the first time since uh, what fifty eight, you know. And apparently uh, Cushing had initially balked at appearing in a contemporary Dracula film, but apparently happily agreed to in the end. In fact, on set he was quoted as saying. So long as these movies make money, I will always do them. And it should be no surprise to anybody that Lee, on the other hand, just absolutely hated the script. Uh, Carreras, apparently, James Carreras, apparently had to offer him a huge salary bump to even get him to agree to appear in the film. And even then, even still, he nixed many of the lines that were originally written for him. I mean, he's like maybe in 13 minutes of this movie. It's not... Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet... I noticed that, too. God, his his presence just is there is a moment in this movie. There's a shot where he sort of stalks in the frame and turns. And uh, I, he, he gives better cape, I think, than any Dracula before or since. Like it's it's one of the coolest shots that ever had the character in it, I think. And uh, I don't know, whatever they had to pay him, even though he hated being there. I mean, he, I think he, he may be the magnificent. I think you're on to something there with him being the coolest Dracula. Yeah. 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 I mean, even I mean, when he's disengaged he's amazing as the character you know even when he's not super happy with the role or the script like he there's just something about him in his presence that can't be denied yeah what was it paul ages ago you and i when we talked about taste the blood of dracula there's the scene where he just he telephones his line in where he says something like they destroyed my underling they shall be destroyed like he could give a fuck about being oh, there yeah. and yet it still works because it's Christopher Lee. Mm -hmm. Those blood, whenever his eyes go blood red, it's terrifying. <laughs> All right. Now we talked a bit about her hair. Uh, can we talk a bit about Stephanie Beecham as Jessica Van Helsing here? Who sadly would only get one movie as the character before she was. Now, does anybody know the story? I couldn't find anything on this. Was she replaced as Jessica, I, or did she bow out of the sequel? I think she was working on something else because they turned it around so quickly. I could be wrong on that. I mean, the the reality is, is that this is the superior of the two 70s movies, but controversial statement, Joanna Lumley is a better Jessica Van Helsing. Like, I'm, I, I, she just is. You know, I, I, I don't dislike Stephanie Beecham in this movie, but she's just like so demure and, eh. She's not she's she's not just not bringing it like she's a damsel in this, whereas I think Joanna Joanna Lumley in, in Satanic Rites uh, is part of the action, because I think that the hope had been that they were going to carry into the modern era. And at some point she would be Van Helsing. But of course, that movie didn't terribly. So that never happened, which is a shame, because I think we needed a modern vampire slaying badass lady that, of course, oh, yeah. we, we didn't, you know, then get till Buffy. So, yeah. 
Do you think that it was down to her performance, maybe, or maybe the writing? Because it's funny, she, right before this, was it like one or two years before she filmed this movie, she did um, The Nightcomers, the uh, the Turn of the Screw prequel with Marlon Brando, and I actually thought she was quite good in that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not besmirching uh, Stephanie Beecham at all. I think that she's a very talented actress. I just don't know that... Th this is one of those unfortunate takes where... Uh, she's just not really given a lot to do, which this happens a lot during this era, as much as I love these movies, but it's uh, kind of systemic across, across the film industry at the time where, yeah, she's the female lead of the movie, but her character is still in deference to all the male characters, you know, and that's, mm. is this bastard giving anybody Shelley from Friday the 13th? <laughs> He just feels like he's from almost any Friday the 13th movie. Like, you could just put him in to the group in any one of those films, and he would just fit right in. Yeah. Michael, I agree with you, though, about Joanna Lumley, because as a Sapphire and Steel fan, I will I will say that she is always the greatest thing in anything that she does. So, And for Hammer fans out there, if you have not seen Sapphire and Steel, like, it, it's... If Hammer did like a sci-fi horror show, if Hammer tried to do their version of uh, Doctor Who in the 70s, like would Sapphire and Steel be that far removed from that, do you think? No, I love Sapphire and Steel. It's uh, It only lasted, what, eight or nine episodes because it's vastly inaccessible uh, in the way yeah. that it's just really <laughs> fucking weird. That first episode, it's it's her and, and Steele. I, I forget the actor's name. Um, uh, David McCallum, maybe? Yeah, David McCallum. And it's all that. It's like a gothic house, which is so very Hammer. But then because you're not sure if Sapphire and Steele are like psychic detectives or alien people or from the future or whatever, in that first episode, it does get kind of explained as the show goes on. And they have all these things where they just stare at each other and you hear this like weird voiceover where they're telepathically communicating. But it just feels it feels like Daniel Steele like romantic novel whispers as opposed to psychic powers. Um I of course love it, but it is a mess. You know? It is opening. I remember watching the first episode after reading about it and thinking like Watching this TV show is how I felt about reading Lovecraft for the first time. Like, I know it's cool, but it, it, it takes some effort to get into and kind of get on its wavelength. I don't think the British get enough credit for going in. Well, I mean, amongst folks like us, they do. But in terms of the larger horror community, for being willing to get weird far earlier than seemingly yeah. anybody else, because... You have things like Sapphire and Steel, and a contemporary of that was would be like a show like The Omega Factor, also a British show that was just bananas weird. But then you've got things like Ghost Watch and uh, yes. the like uh, the anything Nigel Neal did. You know, all of those things were these sort of weird oh, yeah. metaphysical kind of horror. That is it horror, or is it actually just because he's an old man and crumbling apart, and that's the true horror? And oh my God, we're all gonna die, and what is mortality? And it's yeah. just like. And then meanwhile, stateside, it's like Frankie and Annette are investigating a ghost. <laughs> Uh-oh. Can we talk about, because she only has a couple of seconds of screen time left, can we talk about Carolyn Monroe here? Oh, she's, uh, you were asking me why this movie, right? <laughs> Carolyn Monroe is a big reason why. Her first she's... Hammer film. I was going to ask, is this her first appearance in a Hammer flick? Yeah, the previous year she was in The Abominable Dr. Fibes. This is her Hammer debut. And then, of course, she's in the other one I talked about, 
uh, Captain Chronos Vampire Hunter, another one of my favorites. And uh, she oh, also, yeah. well, another favorite, I mean, yeah, obviously we have Star Crash, we have Maniac, but have you guys ever seen I Don't Want to Be Born, a.k.a. The Devil Within Her? No. No. With Joan Collins, uh, where she's trying, to, uh, her baby's trying to kill her, like her baby, not her child, her baby is trying to kill her. The episode of Dynasty I always wanted. <laughs> like, Carol, Carol the Rose in that one, well, and it's worth tracking down. It's a, right. it's a good one. It's you can't believe they actually made it and expected it to be taken seriously at first. And apparently, she was as so many uh, actors were by him. Uh, she was handpicked by James Carreras after he spotted her in an ad. So, uh, so it goes. Carreras, classic Carreras. <laughs> I think she's my favorite Hammer Girl. I don't know. Do you guys have a favorite Hammer Girl? Veronica Carlson. Mm. Ingrid Pitt? Uh, Ingrid Pitt's a great choice. Gosh, that's a good question. Uh, favorite? David Peel? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's fair, though. Why didn't he do more Hammer, do you think? Um, I don't know. You know, he was too beautiful to live. Uh, I don't know. I thought that was just me being stupid. I don't know. That's a great question. Like, uh, Barbara Shelley is up there. Definitely. Well, that's who. That's mine. Barbara Shelley's mine. But I, but I like her because I just think she she's one of the best performers that Hammer had. I personally, I thought she did such a good job in all the movies she was in. It is a cheat, but I also will throw down for Betty Davis because the an- the yeah. anniversary <laughs> and the nanny both to me are like some solid hammer film. It's a good uh, that's a good choice. Mike, I, I, I appreciate your choice there. And uh, um, it's funny, I looked her up. Uh, it was noted that she had the distinction of being the only actor ever signed to a long-term contract by Hammer Films. And yet... Even still, she turned down like leading roles in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. She turned down Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. And she turned down Vampirilla, um, all three because apparently they required nudity. And I'm now imagining an alternate universe where uh, Carolyn Monroe played Vampirilla. And she why were we denied? She play Vampirilla, too. That's the most unfortunate part about that. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm stunned that we still don't have a Vampirilla movie all these years later. We will. Don't worry. I'm going to make that happen. Do it. I'm a big... Uh, Ali, you've been yeah, that is, so that that's is amazing. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, listeners out there, have we actually discussed that on the show proper here? Vampirella? Uh, well, uh, Vampirella, but Ali uh, is actually on the cover of, uh, is it Dynamite Comics Vengeance of Vampirella number four? Yeah. As the character. I love that. I uh, That was one of those comic books that I always wanted to write because I just think that it's just so like that cool mix of 70s sci-fi and horror that we just don't see anymore. And I'm so glad that they still publish those comics. I, uh, I now need to seek out your issue, Allie. Oh my gosh. Just give me your mailing address. I'll send you one. <laughs> I had, they like, they sent me an email being like, Oh yeah. Like, thanks for being on the cover. We're going to send you like 10 copies. And I'm like, cool. That's amazing. They sent me a box of like 400. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> it's be sitting in your closet forever. Right. That's fantastic. And yeah, they don't get what's I guess live models. Would that be how you say that? They don't get live models to do Vampirella often, do they? So that's like a nice distinction, I think. Yeah, I feel like with the Vengeance of Vampirella, they had like uh, like four alternate covers per issue, so that they were allowing cosplayers to kind of because my friend um, Violet was also 
on one of the covers and that's how I like kind of found out about it. And then my friends at Horror DNA were like, oh, no, no, we'll give you the hookup. We'll like send you up with all these like contacts and dynamite. Like you'll get on the cover. Don't worry. And I'm like, cool. I just want to do this for fun. <laughs> but if we're going to do a cover, I mean, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah, I cool. I remember when Julie Strain did it, but that was yes. like, what, a long yeah. time ago. The yeah. Jim Winorski film or the sort of Jim Winorski thing. Well, was was that Julie was in Talisa the movie? Soto, I think. Yeah, because Julie did some cover stuff, but um, <clears throat> I never the, the Jim Winorski film. The only thing I remember about it is that Roger Daltrey's in it. <laughs> I still haven't seen it all these years later. Speaking of swing in uh, England. <laughs> Ken Can Russell's I ask you all? Vampirella. What? Oh my God, that would have been something. So, okay, Johnny Alucard here, which I just want to say, Johnny Alucard should have had his own franchise because Johnny Alucard is a franchise name, if there ever was one. I want to see Hammer's Johnny. What is his name again? Johnny Alucard. <laughs> one more time. I just didn't get it. <laughs> you know what? Change it. Make it Johnny Dracula, even. I would be fine with that. And he's great in this, too. Like, he's, he's just got a look. Yes. He's, he's creepy. He's a good villain. Like, I mean, I ain't gonna say he gives Christopher Lee a run for his money, but like in a movie that has very little Christopher Lee, he's an appropriate substitute. Well, yeah. the character the character does get some extra play. I don't know. Uh, have we talked on previous visits the about the books that Kim Newman does? Those Anno Dracula that reimagines a pop culture history where Dracula defeated the vampire slayers at the end of the book and then becomes the monarch of England and blah 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 blah. Uh, yes, and you uh, made it sound like super awesome, and I picked up the first book, and it's uh, it's on a shelf. It's waiting for me. Um, well, I love those books, but if you make it somewhere deep, deep in, I think his book five or six is actually called Johnny Alucard, and it is about this character after the you know the inevitable kind of disappearance of Dracula in one of the books. He becomes a Warhol superstar and manipulates the Hollywood scene into becoming sort of what this movie is, and that whole book is sort of. Uh, a 1970s and 80s landscape of um, of the new world, like Warhol and Orson Welles, and all of, uh, and he's the main villain of that. And you could tell. I mean, obviously Kim Newman is the foremost Dracula scholar in the world, uh, and he, everything he does is so intentional. And, and the fact that he wrote a whole new movie with this character sort of in mind, uh, whole movie, whole book. Uh, just kind of shows exactly what you're saying. That he understood that the longevity of this is like Dracula Jr. sort of. I want like a road movie with Meinster and Alucard. Like, tell me that wouldn't be a blast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I know what I want it to be, and I know what the, the uh, standards and practices would never let it be. <laughs> um <laughs> Because, I, you know, and I, I talk about this anytime Baron Meinster comes up, because Baron Meinster, to me, is, of course, the best bride of Dracula, um, because he is. He is he is a bride of Dracula. And uh, yeah. so I kind of, and, you know, Johnny here is sort of, a pro, uh, you know, the progeny. So it's kind of like going on a road trip with, like, dad's weird, weird ex and, and fucked up son. <laughs> I don't know. I just want now, to see can it. anybody, you know, it's funny because Dracula is in the public domain. So one imagines that Kim Newman could get away with that, but he has also used characters like Meinster and Johnny Alucard in his stuff. So does he have to license that from hammer? Do you think, or 
Um, as far as I remember, uh, and, and this also, because we've talked about it in previ previous visits, I actually worked for Hammer for a brief period of time. Uh, I love Dracula's resurrection here. This entire sequence, this whole movie is gorgeous. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask, why do you all think whether... And I've seen this movie so many times, and yet I still ask every time, Johnny, is he the same guy as in the beginning? Is he a descendant? And either way, why does it take 100 years to resurrect Dracula? Uh, is, cause, is it because he's buried on hollowed ground, right? And they have to wait for it to be desanctified. Oh, okay, so it had to be, like, not consecrated. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense to me. It sounded right, right? I just made it up. Over it sounded there. right, yeah. But I mean, also, like, I, I always just figured 100 was like a nice round number. Yeah, you know, that, like I think years. that's what makes sense. <laughs> I, I assume that Johnny was a descendant of the character we saw at the beginning. Indeed. What I figured. And so, like, the ashes and the ring were just passed down? Yeah. What if it had gone to a descendant who was just like, eh, this was granddad's thing. I don't really feel like it. <laughs> That would have made for a, a less interesting movie, probably, you know, without Dracula in it. Dracula AD, 1972. You just see the guy after the prologue discarding those items in like a uh, a sale and then credits. <laughs> It'd be fun. I love this scene. I love the bite. I love. Uh, and yet at the same time, once the plot kicks into gear, I want to ask everybody here. At this point in the franchise, we're what? We're seven movies deep. What do we think of Dracula? I mean, he's a commanding presence. He's intelligent. But am I wrong about this? It feels like more often than not, our dude here, he's only ever interested in getting revenge on people. Like world domination, anything like that ever? No, he's going to kill the guy who sent a guy after me. Or he's going to kill the guy who killed my underling. Or the descendant of the guy that killed me. Like, it's just, it's so petty. He's a um, petty creature. Well, and that's why you have to get to the next movie, because in Satanic Rites, yeah. he is running the really big company. No, no editorializing. That's the name of the company uh, that uh, <laughs> is poised to take over the London economic situation. So at least he's back to some like nefarious wheeling and dealing. Yeah, because because in, in this movie, to, to your all's point earlier, Alucard has like far grander ambitions with the power he's going to get, it seems than than Dracula necessarily does. But, but I also think that Dracula recognizes that were he not to take out Van Helsing, it will likely be his undoing again. You know, I want to interrupt just to talk a minute about Marsha Hunt. Do we know uh, about Marsha Hunt guys and girls? Mm, no, no. She, no is uh the rolling stones sound brown rolling stones song brown sugar was yeah. written about marcia hunt not claudia lanier as speculated and Ooh. and in addition to being a writer and she was on broadway and hair she fronted uh, a band an la punk band called marcia and the vendettas that are featured prominently on the soundtrack to fade to black hmm. nice damn that's that's impressive as hell. Did I remember I like, watching this movie. She's very good in the movie, and she's stunningly beautiful. Like one wonders why, you know, she wasn't put under contract by Hammer to make you know. More she was doing her own thing. It sounds like she uh, 
she she uh, a true artist, I believe. High school, and she is still living. She is seventy-five, and she has written. She wrote three volumes of autobiography, which is impressive as hell. I'm wondering if there's a chapter on her time making seminal classic Dracula. AD 1972. I mean, if you're sure in three so. volumes, you would have to, right? Like, here's a question I have for you. Why do you guys think that this one is not held in as high regard as the rest of the Dracula franchise? Mm. Ooh, good question. Anybody want to take that one? Because I have no idea. I have no idea. I think it's the modern setting more than anything, and that it uh, is maybe a little too much fun for what people want out of these kinds of movies. That's the only thing I yeah, can... Maybe? That makes sense. Yeah, I, I was reading reviews, because um, one thing, I love to read reviews that were written at the time of the movie's release. Um, and, like, I read Roger Ebert's review, uh, and he gave it one star. <laughs> Raj. Um, and it was one of those, you know, Ebert had this tendency when he didn't like a movie to not really review the movie, to just kind of talk snarky about it and then kind of trail off and the review ends and he didn't really specify what wasn't great about it. But you get the impression that, and I agree with you, Mike, I, I think it was that they viewed the modern setting as sort of selling out. Like Hammer sort of saying, okay, well, what we did really well isn't really selling anymore. So let's just do the thing that modern movies are doing. And and they viewed it as cheapening what might have been of a higher quality. But that also doesn't really track all that much because the previous Dracula movies were also often poorly reviewed at that sure. point. Like, So, you know, they were, I think critics were just kind of, finding different ways of bashing something that they were sick of because we were seven movies in. It's kind of like when a big franchise happens now, the later entries almost always get poor reviews if they're in quick succession, regardless of the quality, because there's so many of them. But then years later, in retrospect, we go back and go, oh, well, number five was actually really good. And (laughs) this, that, and the other, you know, versus at the time where we're like, oh, my gosh, another one. (laughs) Yeah. So I think I think that was part of it too. Well, is I there... also Oh, sorry, go. I was say I also think that we can't discount that there is starting to be a shift. Like 1972, while there's still quite a bit of drive-in fare and uh, you know, these kind of movies, hammer films, uh and and the American equivalent, we're starting to see the rise of the auteur. Like 72 is the year the la- yeah. that, that Last House on the Left comes out. Brian De Palma makes Sisters this year, which of course kickstart his career. And, and I think that the conversation is starting to change, even though people at the time maybe aren't fully aware of it. But, you know, Hammer at this point is already several decades into their reign of horror supremacy and – what happens when you're on top too long is people get tired and they start looking out where out, outside and they start looking for the things that buck the norm and buck the establishment. And when you've been on uh, top for so long, you kind of are the establishment. So they're looking yeah. for the grittier stuff and the more uh, artist driven stuff. Not that this isn't, but, you know, you know, that whole auteur shift that happens. I mean, the very year after this is when we get Exorcist. And so um, I think that a mixed between the modern setting and just 
as much as I hate to say it because I love these movies and I love all of Hammer's output for the most part, I'm sure there was Hammer fatigue. It's like, oh, it's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing playing Dracula and Van Helsing again, which is charming to us because we didn't grow up with it. But I think if that was every summer at the theater, you would right. maybe be thinking of something else. You know, I think that's especially uh, like on my other podcast, uh, Windy City Double Feature Picture Show, we generally look, because we're talking about Chicago uh, cinema history, we talk about Siskel and Ebert quite a bit. And it's like, if you had, who obviously hated the run of slasher movies throughout the late 70s and in through the 80s, yeah. if you had to watch, if you had to review that trash every week, you would start to hate them. <laughs> how do you all feel that like long running franchises then can sort of, or have there been any franchises that have run that long that have sort of dodged that feeling of fatigue with audiences? I remember working at a movie theater and it was interesting to chart the progression of certain long running franchises during my time there. Uh, there was both the Saw franchise and the paranormal activity franchise. And I swear movie for movie, you could almost chart how people felt about it from the first film to the second film, to the third film, to the fourth film, you would get like, Hey, what's this? Oh, Hey, they made another one. Yes. The third one. I can't wait to see that. And then by the time you get to the fourth one, fuck another one. Really? They're still making these, ah, uh, you know, and yet, I don't recall the third films in either franchise really pissing that many people off. In fact, I would think they're widely considered to be among the better ones in the entries. It's just, it's something about it becoming commonplace that seems to annoy people. I don't know. It's, it's weird. Well, I think it becomes less of an event, right? I think that the people who become the hardcore fans are always in and they're always going to show up for it. But I think what happens when something's a phenomenon, right? You know, everybody goes to check it out. And that momentum only lasts so long. You know, we were talking earlier about child's play. I I am of the, the mind because Don Mancini has maintained creative control of all of the movies and the trajectory. And I know people have their thoughts about individual entries. But what I, for me, I think film for film, there's this really interesting narrative arc that he's been able to curate over the years that keeps me interested. And so, like, I have not wavered in interest even when it got screwy or got a little strange because he has at, at some point always brought us back around to the continuity or made it work somehow. Um, mm -hmm. But I also knew that, you know, you mentioned Seed and how Seed goes far afield and ever, no one would disagree. But by the time Seed came out, the 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 demographic of people that went to see child's play in massive numbers that made it such a pop culture phenomenon not the exact same amount of people were going to see seed of chucky because by that point we had already done enough of these that kind of the uh the fair weather attendees had fallen away and it was just the people that were kind of in it to win it at that point um and and that, i think that is true of every franchise I, and i think eventually uh, it does come down to the diehards, you know, and is that good? Is that bad? I don't know, but it's certainly uh, the story of our, our genre for sure. It is weird. I, I just wonder how you strike that balance where, you know, if you are doing the Friday the 13th thing or song or paranormal activity and you're coming out every year, eventually you will exhaust, you know, mainstream audiences. But then if you wait too long, you know, and the iron is no longer hot, then that's a problem too. I remember it was kind of unthinkable to me working again in the movie theater when Scream 4 came out. 
like I personally was kind of like braced for impact that opening weekend. I was like, oh, my God, we have another Scream movie. Finally, I remember watching the previous movies in sold out houses, you know, and those movies lasted forever. I think the first film was at my local uh, local theater for six months when I was a kid. And then it hit and it did OK. You know, it was fine. Same thing with Seed. Uh, Bride came out in 98 and did pretty well. And then they waited, what, six years, seven years for uh, for Seed? And, like, nobody showed up for it. Well, I mean, there was a point where some of these movies were coming out so quickly. I think, what wasn't it Elm Street 4 and 5 were within, like, the same year or something? It was, it was a very... One and two are released, like, within, almost to the day. One year to the day. And I know part four, they had a trailer out before they had any footage, because it just features footage from one, two, and three. Yeah. Like, they were cranking them out. Them and Friday the 13th, they were cranking out every year. It's wild, right? You can't even imagine that these days, right? No, no, it's crazy. No. Friday the Thirteenth yeah, movie, it was weird. One in a decade, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think the the benefit of of a franchise like that is, you know, all of those entries are going to constantly be rediscovered. You know, if 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 you're in a franchise that that sort of gives you a longevity that a lot of standalone movies, unfortunately don't always get um, because people are going to go seek out, Oh, I want to watch the child's play series and I'm going to watch them all. Um, I'm going to buy the box set and I'm going to reevaluate every single one of them. (laughs) Um, And, and that's like the popular thing to do. So if you're a movie that's in that franchise or in Friday the 13th or Halloween or the Christopher Lee Dracula series, like you're going to be ripe for rediscovery and the ones that fans decades removed are going to gravitate towards are the ones that are less loved because it's the ones that are less talked about, the ones we saw the, the least, you know, and those are usually going to be the ones that sort of get those reappraisals. Um, you know, I you, you mentioned Seed. I had never seen Seed until a couple years ago. Like, I just I had never seen it. I, I kind of stopped uh, at Child's Play 3, actually. I'd never seen Bride. I'd never seen Seed. And I watched those two back to back and I loved them. I was like, I don't know why this is a, I mean, I do know why I get that. It's not for everybody. And it's, it's a very specific sort of movie, but I think if you, I think if you watch like the first three and then you watch bride and then you watch seed, you see, I agree with you, Michael. I think there's a trajectory that's very clearly drawn um, beginning with what he's doing in bride. And then I love how curse wrangles it all back in, but doesn't negate it. You know, it's sort of it, it 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 acknowledges it and it still sort of includes it as an important piece. And that's the mark of a great franchise um, is that it's able to do different things and still kind of come back around to what we love about it. Right. No, I think that's something that's really important to take into note about that franchise, particularly, which is why it always has my respect, is that every other horror franchise has at some point tried to cancel a sequel or reboot or do this weird choose your own adventure route and don mancini's like yeah okay we got we got weird at a a couple points um but guess what it's all canon and we'll explain it yeah yep it's all canon yeah i love that yep i agree cannot wait for the tv show same it's gonna be great but yeah so i mean i think i think with this that we talked at the beginning of this movie about like 
how do we make this canon? And I think the, <laughs> the at the end of the day, though, like all all fans of the series make it canon. We make it work because that's part of what loving a series is, <laughs> you know, is, is making this canon. Because I totally see it as canon with everything else that's come before. Absolutely. Sorry, I just uh, I love seeing the painting on the wall of. Uh, is it Lawrence? Is it Abraham? Who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll say Lawrence. Why Lawrence? Why did they always change Van Helsing's name? I remember when, uh, I mean, it kind of made sense with the Hugh Jackman film, why they called him Gabriel when you get to the big revelation at the end. But what's 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 wrong with Abraham? I don't know. It's, why do people hate that name? I don't know. Too biblical? I don't I know. I'd say biblical, know. yeah, probably. Abe. They could have called him Abe Van Helsing. No. I'm not even sure that um, uh, Anthony Hopkins is called Abraham, is he? And Bram Stoker's Dracula? I think he is. I thought he was. Yeah. Is he? Okay. I, that was a franchise that should have been. I understand why it wasn't, but damn it. Could you have imagined a couple of follow-up sequels to Bram Stoker's Dracula in the hammer mold following Anthony Hopkins, just traveling countrysides and whacking vampires, tossing heads off of ravines? I don't know, but. (laughs) Yelling hysterically. I would watch it. Draco! Um, I think it was rumored way back in the day that they did want to do a movie called uh, The Van Helsing Chronicles with Hopkins, but sadly it never went anywhere. I would be down. Yeah, I would watch So, so where, where does this movie rank for y'all in terms of the Christopher Lee Dracula cycle? Mm. Mm. Top three for me. Same, I think. Because yeah, a lot of those, as much as I love, I love them all. They're all great, but a lot of those ones leading up to this one are very much samey. You know, yeah. they're almost remaking the movie every year, every couple of years, uh, and there's not enough, you know, imagination to it. And I think this one has some imagination to it, which makes it stand out, which I like, which is one of the reasons uh, you talk about horror franchises. One of the reasons I adore Jason goes to hell, because after (laughs) all those sequels, like, you know, fine, it's weird and it's wild and maybe it doesn't fit into the canon uh, quite like you want it to. But you cannot deny that it's got some imagination to it. That movie's a blast. I, I don't know why it catches such hell. Because it's not the it's it's why so you know and we were talking about why we only get we've only gotten one Friday the Thirteenth you know in the past you know twenty years or so and whenever everybody talks about rebooting Friday the Thirteenth and whenever you see scripts that uh, that were unmade that people really dig it's just going back to the camp and doing the same old shit <laughs> I have eight yeah. movies of Jason doing the same old shit well. Here, depending on who's if it's actually Jason or not. But say if there's eight movies that are set, <laughs> you have seven, and then you have one where Roy does it. Yeah, 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 they're set in the woods, and it's teenagers, and they smoke pot, and they drink, and they have sex. Blah 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 blah. blah. Why do I want to see another one? Like, are you tell are you telling me that the original Friday the Thirteenth isn't good enough that you can improve upon that? Because I doubt it. I I don't think that it can be done. So why not do something interesting? Uh, friends of mine on the uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers podcast, Dion, had a great idea for a sequel where condos are built on Camp Crystal Lake and Jason is loose in the condos. Like, I think that's brilliant. I think that's imaginative. I think it still fits in the same slasher mold, but just a little bit different to, to differentiate itself from the eight movies that came 
right? Or just do Jason Takes Manhattan, but do it right now that you actually have a budget to do it. Yeah. yeah remake Jason Takes Manhattan why again. Why not remake a bad movie? I can't believe that we live in a world where Stephen King tweeted out his idea for a Jason Voorhees novel <laughs> with a core idea that sounded pretty cool. And I mean, that's the moment that whoever, whatever the hang up is there, whoever wants this or that or whatever, that's the moment when somebody like Paramount should step in and be like, look, we'll just fucking pay you off. Name a price. We have Stephen King yeah. who has yeah. ideas here. So, At this point, I don't even think it's about money so much as it's about ego between Sean Cunningham and Victor Miller, because I believe that's where the hang-up lies. Yeah. Yep. I think so. I had uh, uh, I was lucky enough to talk... As a 41-year-old man, I understand ego, so <laughs> good for you guys. <laughs> You would think that at some point they could just sit down at a table and figure something out. But then again, we're, we're what, 12 years in, something like that? So, And Paramount, just they know that it's printing money at this point. So why not just pay both of them off? I don't, but again, I don't know what everybody wants. And again, it's probably not just about money. It's about, no, I want my name. I, don't, I didn't get this much whatever. Yeah. That is a shame. Um, and the other, you know, I'm kind of happy. Maybe there never needs to be another Friday the Thirteenth movie because, as you know, I mean, I, I I don't know if you know, anybody really knows, but I was not a big fan of what they did with Halloween, uh, 2018. I thought it was, uh, you know, lame. And I am looking forward to Halloween Kills because it looks like my kind of stupid. But maybe we don't need any more kind of. <laughs> reboots and franchises maybe we need to pressure people to come up with new and interesting stuff i'm still waiting it feels like we missed a cycle somewhere you know we had universal you know tackling the uh the classic monsters and then hammer had their run they were replaced by the slashers we went through the the, the reboots and then it feels like we just were kind of stagnating and all of the attempts at creating uh you know what maybe should have been iconic horror movie villains that happened throughout the aughts that just nothing really seemed to stick. Well, I firmly have the belief that the, you can, it's very hard to create a new horror movie villain because nobody will ever be as cool as Freddy Krueger. You will never top that. And anytime you even come close to doing it, it's just going to get immediately compared to Freddy Krueger. Also wanted to talk about that car there. That is a, that is a, uh, what do I got it written down is it's one of the 50 worst cars of all time. It's a 1970 <laughs> Triumph Stag. <laughs> MK1. Uh, Triumphs were cla- oh, great British roadsters. I actually have a 1972 uh, Triumph TR6, which are actually very <laughs> This seems great. I'm sorry. We got to Oh, stop I here. love this. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to I come love, in. Like, yeah. Figure it out. He, he's like really doing his little pictogram to Alucard is Dracula. Yeah, sir. Yeah. <laughs> How many doctorates do you have? I like a little Warmer isn't right. the brightest. Seriously. And it's literally just the name backwards, but he has all these lines intercrossing each other. <laughs> like he figured out the A goes at the front. Like, what? well, I figured out where the C goes, well, but where? Did, yeah, it's like, how did you get the C in the right place? <laughs> Wouldn't it have made more <laughs> sense if he was, was showing somebody else? Like, you know, maybe one of the dim cops or Jessica. Now, see if you take the A. You move it over here. There should have been like a montage where he was like crumpling up sheets of paper and throwing it <laughs> in a trash can, like as he was like filling up the, the crazy different like ways to figure out the name. Darka, <laughs> no. Dracula? No, nobody would ever come up with that. Dracula D. Dracula. 
That could work. So I do love that this movie was called Dracula 80 1972, and it was actually released, thank goodness, in 1972, apparently alongside Freddie Francis's Trog, which I'll admit I've never seen, but it is Francis. It is Freddie Francis, so I feel like I need to seek that out. Trog is something to be seen. It is. It's on Criterion right now. It's a good watch. Wait, Criterion has Trog? Uh, on their streaming <laughs> site. They, they have it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I should preface that with on the streaming channel. Of <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'll, I'll, what? Yeah, okay, yeah. Would it work on a double bill with eighty seventy two? No. End of list. Let me see. Actually, I have the Chicago newspaper up from the release. Uh, it came came to Chicago in on December twelfth, nineteen seventy two. And let's see if it was playing any double features. Um, at the Bel Air Drive-In, it was playing, a, not necessarily a double feature, but Dracula AD 1970 was playing alongside Last House on the Left, which was held over. Oh, wow. wow. Can you imagine that double feature? Right. Nope. That would be wild. Uh, at the People's on 47th and Ashland, you can see Dracula AD 1972, Dracula AD 1972 with Magnificent Seven Ride and Return of Sabata. So it was two westerns in Dracula, nineteen two. Uh, you could see Dracula AD at the Will Rogers alongside Taste the Blood of Dracula. Okay, oh. that's all right. Yeah, so it was on a couple double features for well, Chicago. Nice double bill, yeah. Time and you know the drive-ins were open in December here in Chicago. Now I'm going to look up the 1972 horror movies to see what I would have put this. Like, I'm just going to do my own double feature. Blackula, <laughs> end of list. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's worth noting that uh, Gene Siskel was a big fan of Blackula and uh, Scream, Blackula, Scream. Gave very good reviews to both of them. And we mentioned Ebert earlier. But Siskel gave one star to Dracula 80, 1972, and mentions in his last paragraph, great attention is paid to traditional elements of the Dracula story, right down to the police detectives that don't believe the vampires exist, but the neck attacks play as timid first date kisses, and thereby the tale is hanged. And if anyone knew about timid first date kisses, it was Gene <laughs> Siskel. And the boy hung out at the Playboy <laughs> Theater all the time. He was known in Chicago in the late 60s and early 70s. Hmm. There were some good movies that came out in 72. The Gorgor Girls. Uh, let's see. I Dismember Mama. Yeah, there's Gibson, some stuff. The, Alan Gibson is the guy who directed this, a Canadian director. Uh, he had just made his feature directing debut. I got to say, he shoots the hell out of this movie. Yeah, it's, it's beautifully shot. Of, uh, apparently he, it's an unfortunate story though, this being his first Hammer production, um, he and the producer, who was a friend of Carrera's, she was named Josephine Douglas, uh, she was handpicked by Carrera's to produce this film, apparently they had a pretty terrible working relationship while making the movie, which is, uh, you know, it's always unfortunate to hear, and yet, nevertheless, I mean, the movie, the results, they speak for themselves, and, you know, Gibson did return to direct the sequel, so apparently Carrera's, uh, was at least happy with uh, how well he could make a movie. It just always bums me out to hear about Strife on set. And yet, why is it the movies that apparently were, uh, you know, there was no trouble on set, no tensions, nothing of the sort, everything goes swimmingly. Uh, sometimes those movies aren't great. Like, well, 
I think it's that thing, like, you know, the fact that, like, speaking of the Rolling Stones, like, that Mick and Keith were always arguing. There's something about that tension between artists that makes people work just a little bit harder. Yeah. Hmm. Very true. Sense. But I don't think you need that. All the time. Like, I, I think that's also kind of misnomer <laughs> that you need to have that, uh, especially, like, being in a band, you need to have that, that, that headbutting. I don't think it necessarily has to be like that. That is one hell of a shot. I mean, obviously the shot of Lee just walking around swinging that cape. Like, I, I just love that moment. But then Johnny just so casually discarding the body by, you know, kicking her out of the open door. It's just there's a cruelty to it that I kind of love when it comes to his character. You know, there, if there's any problem with this movie, we don't get enough of Christopher Lee in Swinging London. Yeah. Well, we needed that montage, the Jason Takes Manhattan moment, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say is there is a bit of Jason Takes Manhattan to it because the promise of the movie is that, you know, Christopher Lee is going to be wreaking havoc on on modern day London. And that's not really what this movie is. I, that I, might I, also have led to some of the disappointment. I would have loved him, like, walking down Carnaby Street in that cape and yeah. like, just digging his cape because that's a very Carnaby Street thing. Yeah, I just wish yeah, that... like people being super into his look like oh yeah man this is well great. yeah and for anybody who's interested if you want to recreate any of the looks in this movie just visit uh, uh, Adam Retro uh, they stock a lot of stuff from Madcap England where, where I shop quite a bit so if you want your British voting <laughs> blazers and your your purple uh, corduroy uh, flares you can pick them up there and they offer Klarna if you want to do the pay as you go plan nice I um yeah, no, I I do think the movie suffers a little bit for what you all are talking about, but at the same time I'm I'm weirdly I'm scarred. I'm reminded of that sequence from Blade Trinity where the beefy Dracula walks into a hot topic and gets offended at the sight of Count Chocula and uh goths and uh I'm like maybe maybe it would have wound up something like that. Admittedly Lee would have made it cooler. Yeah, it's yeah, trust in Lee on that one. There was, uh, when it comes to Lee, this film was sort of uh, drummed up with a little bit of interest by way of a promotional film that was shot that included behind-the-scenes footage and an interview with Lee in his home declaring, <laughs> and we've talked about this before on this podcast, where Lee maybe took things a little too seriously, Uh but he was quoted as saying in the promotional film, I can assure every one of you watching that Vlad V. Tepish Dracula did exist. Uh, I just, I, I, part of me loves the fact that he took the character so very seriously, even when the films were anything, but I think it's kind of admirable, but at the same time, like just reading all the stuff that I had about it, it just, it, I kind of wish he had had a little more fun with it all. And I don't think he did. Whereas I think Peter Cushing is just having a good time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think Cushing, I think Cushing just gets it, you know, I think he just gets it. Like in all of his performances, I think that's probably the difference between Cushing and Lee for me is, you know, when when Lee is disengaged from a movie, you, you can kind of tell like he, he still does a good job, but but it's it's there in his performance. I don't think Cushing ever feels like he isn't giving it his all. Cushing's kind of like Vincent Price in that way. Right. Where it's just 100 percent every time. All right. Here's the real question. Who's hotter? Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee? Christopher Lee. It's, it's I, ooh, I'm on the Peter Cushing train. 
That's tough. I I lean more towards Cushing. I I yeah. I too would say Cushing. See, I'm firmly in the Lee camp, and I thought that'd be an easier easy win. But I like to hear this uh, <laughs> this Brit's opinions. I mean, he looks good. I mean, they both look good in a suit. I mean, yeah, they both have a a different. I mean, Lee's got that kind of animal magnetism and a golden gun. I just feel like Cushing would respect me more. <laughs> look, when you're on a date with Dracula, it ain't about respect, Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a good point. Fair, fair. Now has compelling argument. <laughs> okay, so when we're playing this game of uh, fuck, Mary kill, who is the third choice thrown in here? Um, Price. Oh, is uh, Vincent Price? Yeah, would that be the third oh, one? Oh, don't do this to me, Vincent Price. Yeah, is so choose. Special. Oh, I I can't do uh, it. Oh, let's or do we keep it hammered? Do we throw Meinster in there? Do we throw Alucard? Like I don't know. How does this work? Um, Robert Robert Corey, the Robert Corey. Oh, Ralph Bates. Oh, okay. Well, that get this gets real easy real fast. Oh, uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> he knew it. I want to hear the answers. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I would, I would marry Cushing. I guess. Oh, I can say that much. Uh, yeah, I'm. Sh- I feel like Cushing's probably the better. He's the marrying kind. Yeah, he's the marrying type. Yeah, Lee's the banging type, and like if it was Bates, we'd have to kill him. But you know what? There's a part of Bates that would be into it, right? And that's the kind of thing that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. He'd he'd probably not be super mad at your decision. He'd be like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> This now, <laughs> now, in terms of spectrum of performance, go with me on this, because I often think this, that halfway between Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, in terms of commitment and mania, <laughs> is Donald Pleasance. There you oh, go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love yeah. that. That is such a good take. <laughs> he is. He's, he's, like, he's right in between those two. Isn't it strange then that Halloween event like originally went out to Christopher Lee when they probably yeah. should have been going to Cushing? Like I, I, I think Cushing would have made yeah. more sense. Cushing is the more like obvious answer on that one for sure. I mean, like, if it yeah, Cushing, but I guess Cushing that's kind of won. like it's kind of cool having like you know Lee, who generally played the villain, uh, playing Loomis because Loomis is a you know the hero a hero of the piece. But he's also obviously unhinged. And I also think it has a lot to do with crossover markets, too, because, you know, we love Peter Cushing and his place in horror. But he is kind of like the respectable British actor, which, of course, Christopher Lee is as well. But Christopher Lee had a lot more cross market movies, including James Bond and things like that. So if you're John Carpenter making a three hundred thousand dollar movie in Pasadena, you're like, well, I want to get that, you know, martini. Think about this. Cushing might have been in high demand because he did a little movie the year before called Uh, Star Wars. I've heard of it. I have never seen that movie. There's actually a funny, it's funny to me. There's a, the United Artists Theater, which is in downtown Chicago. There's a marquee from when Chicago played in, or when Star Wars played Chicago in 77. And the names on the, the marquee are Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness, because they were probably the only two actors that anybody in a movie knew. That's funny. I love it. 
That's really funny. Yeah. Could you imagine being inside the wall, Cushing fan, and showing up to Star Wars, and at the end of it being like, "What the fuck?" Like, what? <laughs> yeah, I would have been mad if if that movie was sold as like a Cushing vehicle. <laughs> I would not have been happy. No, get your money back for that. I mean, the Death Star was kind of a Cushing vehicle when you think about Hey-o. it. <laughs> oh, you and <laughs> that was that was a good one. Thank my you. favorite, my favorite one you've done so far on this episode, though, was the malignant thing. That was good. That oh, was my you. favorite. <laughs> that was my favorite Michael Verratti original. <laughs> Have you guys ever watched the uh, the little uh, short film that was tagged oh, that was paired with Dracula? 1972 when it came out no i read about this and it sounds amazing it's on youtube uh it's uh barry atwater who would play the vampire in uh the night stalker the first kolchak movie has he comes out of a coffin and has the audience recite the oath of dracula and brings them into the count dracula society that's awesome why can't we do stuff like that today like what i'm mad that the blu-ray doesn't have like that on it like I'm it's it's annoying. It yeah, it it has no special features. The Warner Archive Blu-ray is literally the trailer and the movie with subtitle options. God That's bless it. God bless Warner Archive, but that they get the movies out there, but the yeah, packaging yeah, yeah. is really slim. Like I have their killer party one and it doesn't even have subtitles on it. And I I'm I am watched a movie with subtitles years old. At no, I, I think we all I think we all are at this point. I, I, I watch subtitles on almost everything. Yeah, hey, I'm a loud chewer, so I need subtitles. <laughs> Every movie's a foreign film when you're. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. No, my I, kids, I, I my kids actually subtitles. think that movies just have those on them. <laughs> and the other day. We were watching something and they're like, why aren't the words at the bottom? And I was like, well, not... you're like none of your business, child. Yeah, my, my kids have just gotten used to seeing things that way. I'm like, if they ever go back to the movie theater, they're going to be very disappointed. So, so when I do the drive in at the bar, we have a you know drive in theater in the parking lot of our of the bar, Rock Island Public House in uh, in Blue Island, Illinois. And we run all the movies off of a computer and, you know, it's files that I, I, I have. And sometimes the subtitles will be just automatically play. And I don't think people mind. Like, I remember, uh, was it Scott Lucas from Local H came to see Jaws there? And he was like, oh, no, just leave them on. I need those. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Do you almost, do you not feel like we need more stuff like that or we should have more stuff like that? Like, not just bonus features that we watch on uh, DVD or something that we can pop up uh, or pop on rather as an option that's offered on a streaming site. But I miss, like, honest to goodness, pre-show material that you see in a movie theater that isn't simply trailers. I remember when I was a kid, there was, uh, when I saw The Addams Family, they had, like, an MC Hammer music video. And, uh... You know, there were various, uh, you know, animated films, obviously, that are paired with certain movies. There was, uh, I think the last time I saw something that cool was, um, was it Dreamcatcher? The Stephen King adaptation? It had a seven-minute short film that was set within the world of The Matrix to sort of start pumping people up for uh, Reloaded coming out. I just, I I vaguely remember that. I, I miss that. I miss when that stuff. Rabbit, when Roger Rabbit came around, they would uh, yeah. all the Disney movies pair a Roger Rabbit short. With yes, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to well, see even, Honey I Sunk the Kids, or maybe a Honey I Blew Up the Kid had uh, one attached to it. Yep, you're right. Yeah, and um, well, Disney also did like like uh, M- Mickey's Christmas Carol was a theatrical short that was paired with the Rescuers re-release. Um, and the Prince of the Popper, when they did that Mickey Mouse Prince and the Popper, that was a theatrical short that was tied to, I think, the Jungle Book. So, like, they, they would they would actually sort of, like, at least unite a classic release with something new. Um, and I, I agree. I think, like, pre-show material is really interesting. Like, when A24... I don't know, like last month did the one night screening of the Green Knight, like prior to its digital release, there was a pre-show and a post-show where they actually like read, you know, some of the actual poetry that the the movie was based on and they had actors from the movie involved and it was like really atmospheric and interesting kind of fun. And it made the experience of like tuning into the movie early sort of feel special in a way well and of course where does cinematic ballyhoo come from but genre i mean we but before we went on air we talked about william castle and the reality is in castle's lifetime it was viewed sort of as cheap to meet the audience in that way you know people uh in the in the a pictures sort of looked down on the B pictures that he made and these gimmicks that he did is sort of, oh, he had to have this derivative thing to get people in into the movies. But what Castle was really aware of and understood was that people really want to surrender to that fantasy and to surrender to the experience. And, you know, uh, some of his things were very like, you know, let's electrify the butts of the seats or like throw a skeleton through the audience. Um, but, you know, to have a Dracula oath outside of AD 72 is very much in that vein. And to see, as often happens, the mainstream initially makes fun of the counterculture until they realize, oh, this is a way to keep getting people engaged. And all of a sudden we've got Mickey Mouse as Ebenezer Scrooge outside of a major release. And everyone's like, oh, my God, I got the most out of my movie experience. Well, why don't you go thank fucking William Castle then, Walt? <laughs> I know that like whenever I program something at the music box theater, cause you know, at the theater itself or at like the drive-in, I always try to like, even if it's something as simple as getting some pins made or buying some like a, in bulk, something cheap off of like Amazon, like you could buy like, you know, 50 bouncy ball eyeballs and just giving it away at the screening. Like, you know, people ought to take something home with them too. Right. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels it's special. It's more fun, and you have a little like memorabilia from it. Yeah, totally. I agree. I totally agree. There's a film series in Toronto that I've talked about before in this podcast called Drunken Cinema, where they curate, you know, movies. A lot of times it's horror movies, but sometimes it's like Action Jackson or something. But like it's a theater wide drinking game that everyone gets super into, and the beautiful woman who runs it, her name is Serena, like custom makes playing cards for everyone that has like rules on that you like that's your specific rule to follow and it's like if someone screams you have to drink or like (laughs) but anytime they do like lost boys or any dracula or vampire based movie she buys like bulk plastic fangs like the old ones that like you just pop into and hands them out to everyone everyone gets glow sticks everyone gets a card like it's always (laughs) an event we did wild things once and everyone got a little pig nose (laughs) 
<laughs> no, but it's it's stuff like that that really makes all the difference. And and it's like Mike was saying, sometimes it's just something simple that the audience gets to take home or, you know, to get a pig nose. One of my favorites was they did a screening of Ken Russell's The Devils down in San Diego. And of course, that movie oh, screens yeah. so infrequently that uh, yeah. a, a group of us drove down from L.A. and um, the programmers down there gave everybody who attended a rosary. And uh, what I loved about that was like some lady walking into the theater was like, well, I, I don't know why we're getting these. It's very offensive. And I'm like, oh, honey. <laughs> get get ready gird your loins because <laughs> did you see loins. her walk out or did she make the entire film <laughs> she i don't know i didn't i don't remember but i mean this was like already seven or eight years ago but i remember it very distinctly that this like lady was very shocked that's funny i i would love i would love sequence. to see that movie theatrically the doubles would be that's that's a bucket list thing for me. As cool as Johnny Alucard is in this film, and I do think he is really cool, and I I don't want to sound like I'm knocking what happens because I absolutely love it, but I think it's a great sequence indeed. It's yeah. an amazing. It might be my favorite sequence in the movie, but I think it's absolutely amazing that you have this super cool villain who's been on top the entire film, who's arguably maybe the most clever character in the film. And he dies by tripping and falling into a bathtub and accidentally <laughs> turning running water on himself. That is amazing. That's how I want to go. <laughs> I know. It's like I what I love. <laughs> Peter Cushing's like, I'm going to take him out with this hand mirror. <laughs> and That's a nice adventure. Exactly. And There's a nice sheen of sweat. It's just so oh, well done. This... Oh, sorry. No, I'm just fangirling over him and how attractive I find Cushing. Which is fair. Yeah. This shot, the overhead shot, and then the like low shot looking up is so fucking cool. I just, Whoops. I adore it. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> it another is weird. I mean, one it's... of those, um... oh, sorry. No, good, good. I was going to say another one of the, uh, the the rare pieces of vampire lore that doesn't eke into these movies all that often. The the purity of running water. Are you fucking with us? <laughs> it was this and what? Prince of Darkness? And I think that's it. Yeah. You'd, Wait, is that But really it's a... in. Yeah, yeah. And it's in like old, like uh, in that Montague, Montague Summers uh, vampire, his kith and kin book from like the turn of the century. Like they talks about how the pure, like w running water is one of the things that can defeat a vampire. Cause it's purifying. And, uh, very, oh. very few vampire films actually incorporate that as, as a thing. This franchise has done it before. Um, but like to do it and not actually mention it and just assume that your audience will sort of understand its relevance is kind of a cool move in my eyes. Yeah, I think there's like a like the briefest of passing mentions early on, but not enough like, you know, there was no Chekhov shower set up in this movie and there should have been. <laughs> I, I kind of just assumed it was like blessed or holy water. I guess I never really thought about it that much. Ah, uh, yes. The blessed shower. Yeah. <laughs> there. Downstairs, like in the basement by the pipes, there's like a priest just blessing it like constantly. Right. 
the super comes in. It's like, ah, yeah, we uh, we just put in a new tank. There is, I think I mentioned it, Paul, <laughs> remind me if I didn't like, I, I think you and Heather Wixon and myself, when we were talking Prince of Darkness and that scene happened where uh, he's defeated by running water at the end of that. Uh, the only other time I've seen it outside of these two movies, um, Alan Moore in his Swamp Thing run, uh, the comic book run, there is this great comic about underwater vampires. Uh, like this town had been flooded, it had been dammed off, and so it's the creepiest thing. You had an entire town underneath water, and you had vampires populating it. And so people would go swimming in a lake and then just get plucked down under the water like fucking Jaws was in there, right? And so Swamp Thing, merging with the green and being able to shift like trees and earth and whatnot, the way he defeats them, he tilts the earth so that all the still water starts running out. And uh, the running water actually destroys all the vampires at once. And uh, it is just about the coolest fucking thing you could read in a comic, I think. So uh, I wish more movies would do it. I wish more movies would dive into that really weird vampire lore. Like, uh, and I saw uh, Ali, you noted uh, Dracula 80, 1972 stood a pretty good chance of being a great movie because it included a date in the title, much like Dracula 2000. Paul agreed. I agree with both of you. And the sequel to that movie actually included some of the crazier lore, like uh, yeah, counting, like counting... The... yeah, good the seeds or something like he. It was like seeds He's... or rice, something like that. Oh, rice, yeah. Well, it's it's rice. That's uh for Jiangxi, which are the hopping vampires of of China. Yeah. Um, Wait, really? I, yeah, that is it. Like an ancient Jap, an ancient Chinese. Uh, I think Chinese Jiangxi is from China. Uh, they're they're um their vampire lore if you throw a handful of rice a vampire has to stop and count all the grains oh there's no. this that would be like the easiest way to defeat a vampire there's this insane sequence in the uh the dracula 2000 sequel where somebody paul remind me do they 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 litter the rice around him so that it'll slow him down and at a certain point yeah. you realize that he's counted every single one when nobody was paying attention so they just grab the entire bucket and hurl it at him, and he studies it in the air, and before they all fall, he says something like, 64,271. And then you see, like, yeah. one tiny little piece of rice fall out of the bucket that they hurled at him, and he's like, 72. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it was cool. Yeah, I like I like all three of those movies. Patrick Lussier did a great job. Stephanie Beecham talked a bit about this altered dress, and the problem it... Uh, it gave her and the crew. Apparently, she couldn't wear any underwear during the sequence, apparently. So sticky tape was applied to keep everything in place. And as she noted, uh, <laughs> it, it it apparently gave the sound department hell. So, uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, this, this, <laughs> this movie has one some of my favorite run of uh, promo photos from any Hammer film with Christopher Lee with all the girls from this one. Yes. Yeah. This I, one. Yeah, I saw some of those photos. They're super great. That is so good. I, I, I miss promo photos with the entire cast acting like they're kind of pals when, you know, in the movie there may be anything but. But uh, I don't know. It was just it was just one step away from being like kind of Star Wars-y. Like one of them should have been like grabbing his leg or something. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. The classic Dracula trap. Which is almost like borderline Looney Tunes. Like there's something very <laughs> Roadrunner 
about that. <laughs> What's what I love about the end of Phantasm is that they just get him to fall into a hole and then cover him <laughs> with products. Yeah. The old hole trick. I love that the wind only blows in this movie when Christopher Lee is walking around. It's the wind of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I'd watch it. Coming soon. That's what happens when you drink too much Malort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch. Uh, I would watch Mel Brooks' The Wind of Dracula. So uh, Stephanie Beecham was in uh, another, I don't think it's a Hammer production, and now the streaming starts. Have you guys ever seen that one? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is, that yeah. Is that Hammer? Oh, it's Amicus. Yeah, okay. It's That's Amicus. That's a really yeah. good one. Really cool uh, severed hand effects for 1973. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a really great um, Severin box set with that in it. It's got a Asylum and... Um, Silent yeah, Beast Within, maybe? The or be- Beast, uh, or the, uh, the Beast Must yeah. Be Destroyed, Beast maybe? Yes. Beast Must Die, yeah. That's the, uh, the Werewolf Mystery. The Werewolf movie. one where they where they do the werewolf break, yeah, and they Del- show you all the pictures, and they're like, guess which one it is? <laughs> I love a good werewolf break. Werewolf breaks are very, very underrated. We need more of them. Honestly, <laughs> another bit of showmanship that goes back to Castle, like the Sardonicus, you know, yeah. break near the end of Vote. Every um every movie should have a werewolf break. Every movie. There you are. Yep. In Nancy Myers, it's complicated. There's just like <laughs> now. Yes. Who in this movie is a werewolf? Sometimes the answer is no one. Yeah, like that's it's just like, but they give you the the, the audience, you get a chance to decide. And you know, maybe, yeah. maybe not, but then there you are watching, I don't know. No, you know what you do? You do it in Sophie's Choice, right before she makes the choice. <laughs> Which one's the Drop weird? into Werewolf Break. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. like, sometimes a movie will surprise you and have a werewolf in it. It's just not important to the plot. Like, it just doesn't come up because the movie doesn't take place over the course of a full moon. Like, maybe it's a one crazy <laughs> night movie. You came for Kramer versus Kramer, but what you ended with was Kramer versus Kramer versus Werewolf. <laughs> now that's a movie I'd go see. Just a bunch Paul? of clips of like courtroom dramas where the verdict's about to get read, and then the werewolf break comes in. Mm-hmm. Even if you did something like this catch up, like the montage at the end, like where did they go in life? You know, you didn't have a werewolf anywhere in the movie, but then when you're catching up with the characters at the end, it turns out, hey, one of them got bitten at some point. Joe Boom. Pesci and my cousin Vinny, done. Boom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that's good. Tell so can, can, can somebody, like, take a bunch of movies and edit in a werewolf break? Like, I think that would be fun. Like you know, we 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 could make this a whole new thing where we oh, just. Oh, I, I am already. I'm already break. thinking about how I'm going to do it. I think. It's gonna be- <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have to. I'll have to send them to you guys. I can't post them on my Twitter, so I'm just going to have to do them and send them to we, you. We will be oh, your uh, your your eyes and ears and postings. Wait, on can you can we, you we please like just secretly without anyone knowing that you're going to do it, <laughs> run a special it. cut. Like with a werewolf cut of a movie on, uh, you know, at the uh, at the drive-in because I think oh, that would be good. <laughs> but it's got to be like a non-horror film to like add extra impact. Like you're watching Sidekicks right. with Chuck Norris, and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, 
you know, it's like there's a with with the Twitter ban, there's a lot of like material that I can't oh. use, which sucks because the whole the meme that's going around uh, the television frame that makes you cry thing. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. and I totally would have done uh, a clip from the bike shop episode of Different Strokes. Mm. Oh yeah, you guys, you guys have a sixth sense of humor. <laughs> you probably appreciate dark it. episode. Yeah, yeah, I'm there. I love the bright red blood. I, I, I never not smile ear the to ear. Varied, very know. liquidy blood. One of the things I loved about Sleepy Hollow, I really liked Tim Burton's Sleepy yeah. Hollow. Like yeah. a, the most, the closest to a modern Hammer film I think we've ever really gotten. Yeah. I'll yes. totally. I think it's like an yeah. honorary Hammer at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Sleepy Hollow is very, very Hammer. Sweet Lots of practical effects in that one, too. Sweeney Todd is kind of like a Hammer musical. Yeah, and Christopher Lee even filmed scenes for it that they cut out. Did Last... they really? That's that's a shame. And Anthony Stewart Head, they were both going to be balladeers, and uh, they were all cut. Lame. Yeah, when Although you Head cut... popped up in the movie. Giles. For Giles. You can't get rid of Giles. You can't get he rid of the like Ripper. A, he had a cameo to sort of make up for it where he speaks with Johnny Depp for about two seconds, and that's it. It's just long enough to be like, hey, is that? And then, boom, he's gone. I haven't seen that movie in years. This, well, children, is what you get for getting into disco occultism. Yeah. Don't I wish you had given her out that. drinking with your friends and get into the occult. Yeah. That light scolding, he should, totally should have given her that. Like, there should have been a... Uh, a, a <laughs> That's a nice little movie. title card right there. Yeah. What is the point of that? Why did they have to put it on screen? I like that these movies just end again. Another another thing I love about the Hammer films, they just stop. They just stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they just stop. Now, the final and... piece of Dracula. Until. <laughs> the Satanic Rites. <laughs> Which I remember, I haven't watched that in a while, but I remember not enjoying that one as much as I wanted to. Originally titled Dracula is Dead and Living and Well and Living in London. That's too long of a title. <laughs> it is, but that was the original title of it. You know, the best Dracula poster is the one with the, the Band-Aids on the, the neck, though. Which one was yes. that? It's Dracula's My... Risen from the Grave. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously. And I <laughs> know that because I'm literally staring at it right now. <laughs> I know. My, Michael, has a, Michael has a print, and I'm so jealous. You told me that on that episode. You're like, I have a print of that. And I was like, I want that so bad. That's There's amazing. an original at a shop here in Berwyn, out in the Burbs, uh, that has, they have an original framed. And it's just a little bit out of my price range. But I, I, I gawk at it every time I go to the store. I might have to make a trip next time I'm in town. <laughs> I might I'll have take to you, I'll take you over there for that uh, real art. Uh, when they have their warehouse sale, it's great. They just have stacks and stacks of old movie. Posters. Yeah, dude. No, I'm, I, I, I go to Chicago a couple times a year, so I'll, I'm definitely going to reach out to you when I go. Oh, we're going to party. It's going to be good. <laughs> 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 it's not like 80, 1972, but I'm going to wear a lot of the same outfits. <laughs> <laughs> I would expect nothing less. All right. Somehow, some way, we have reached the end of Dracula 80, 1972. I feel like I know what everybody thinks about it, but nevertheless, we'll go ahead and round out this episode by saying thumbs up, thumbs down, so-so. How does everybody feel about this movie? Thumbs up, for sure. 
thumbs up, four fangs up. It's uh, one of the best of the Hammer, uh, one of the best of the Hammer Dracula entries, and one of my favorite Hammer films in general. Yeah, I'll echo that. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, enthusiastic thumbs up, a little bit of uh, disco partying. I'm here for it. I've always loved this one. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan. I love this movie. It is I'll I agree with everyone. It for me in terms of the rankings, it's it's high. It's high on my ranking list, probably top three or four. Same here. I, I, I think I initially said top three too, but it occurred to me that Seven Golden Vampires is in there too. So that's a I little like that one a lot too, because it's weird, because it brings it doing kind of two different things there. That's a, they might they might be tied somewhere in there. I mean, number one is still always going to be brides for me, uh, but uh, and then horror is probably two. And then, uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to tie 8072 and seven golden vampires. They're both going to be my number three. It's against the rules, but I'm doing it. Well, rules were made to be broken. And who knew that more than Count Dracula? But is he also a werewolf? Decide after this break. <laughs> Right and you just show a picture of him. That's it. That's the only person you're choosing between this specific instance. Is he a werewolf? Yes or no? Do the do the show only his picture, but do the Brady Bunch like uh the Beast Must Die thing where you show multiple pictures, but they're all just him. Exactly. <laughs> Various movies. One from each. Um no, I love I love this movie. I adore it. Uh, I, I'm so glad that everyone seems to like it because it's funny. When I first started getting in the hammer back in the day, it seemed like this is one of those movies that was sort of uh, you know looked down upon. And it's nice that uh, it doesn't really. It's it's the Halloween three of Hammer. I think it's nice to see everybody coming around on it. So, Absolutely. or or not even coming around on it, but just finding that people maybe always loved it, and you know it just got a bad rap for a while that was undeserved. Yeah. All right, but thank you. All so much for chatting this movie. I, I had an absolute blast. Um, before we go, can I ask Mike, Michael, where can folks find you at online and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Can't find me on fucking Twitter, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm dead about it. <laughs> that's bullshit right there. Yeah, I'm mad about it. But you can find me on uh, the Halloweenies pod. Uh, you can find the Halloweenies pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff coming up for. October because we'll be doing our Halloween kills episode. We'll be doing an audio commentary for the the first Halloween two, the first of three Halloween twos. I think it is now the 1981 <laughs> and uh, a whole bunch of great uh, Halloween goodness. And then we've got the Windy City Double Feature Picture Show podcast. We'll be doing a cut. We'll be doing our two um, our two uh, Halloween episodes for the month. And we've got a we're doing a spe- we're hosting a screening of. A double feature of Hammer's The Mummy, actually, and Curse of the Undead. We're recreating a double feature that played in Chicago in the 60s at the drive-in here in Pilsen in oh. Chicago. Oh, that's so you're not amazing. Gonna, as part of the uh, Music Box of Horrors drive-in thing, so you're not going to want to miss that. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Michael, how about you? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Michael Verratti, as well as every Wednesday at midnight, myself and the cult leader, Supreme Peaches Christ. We host Midnight Mass, where we d- dissect and explore and cause trouble with cult cinema and figures uh, every week. Uh, also, of course, if you're into your spooky drag, you can see uh, the new season of Dragula, the Boulay Brothers Dragula on Shutter on October 19th. 
Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I, I suspect there might be a movie coming from me soon, but who's to say? Other, otherwise, we'll, uh, yeah, just keep your eyes and ears open. Very cool. Wait, can you announce anything? Can we get an exclusive? Can you hint at what you're working on? Is that possible? I'm leaning forward into the mic right now. I can. But I'm not going to. <laughs> Heartbreak. It's only fair. Okay, I understand. I had to ask. I love it. All right. Allie, how about you? Uh, well, you can find me across all the social medias at the Alley Chapel. And just a straight up reminder, if you haven't been in Niagara Falls during the Halloween weekend, I am a guest at the Frightmare in the Falls convention. You can come and see me in my full costume from the Necropolis Legion movie where I have like my mouth boobies and everything. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it's it's fun. It's it's good times. Um, yeah. Otherwise, uh, it knows you're alone. Just premiered on the seventeenth on Full Moon Features as well as Amazon Prime. And the month of October is gonna be a lot of work filming a lot of feature films. And hopefully, I mean, they won't be out soon, but they'll be out. Very. Cool. Or you can just find me in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul. How about you? Well, you can find me at the uh, very, very modest Twitter handle of at Paul is great 2000. And uh, in terms of what to look out for, um, we just had a new Dead Ringers go up uh, featuring Carnival of Souls and Messiah of Evil uh, with uh, guest Trevor Henderson, who's a prolific horror artist. Uh, He is amazing. And he had a lot of cool things to say about those movies. So give that a listen um in terms Sci-fi of uh, star wars right oh yeah oh yeah uh but like uh otherwise uh i've got a couple articles up on blade disgusting uh, x the unknown came out about a week ago uh, kind of breaking down hammers that particular hammer film for october i'm going to be doing a feature on brides of dracula so that'll be going up and I've got a couple articles going up about the Halloween franchise and some other things. So be on the lookout for stuff you can read that I wrote. And that's that's what I got. <laughs> Good deal. All right. Mike, Michael, thank you both so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, I can't wait to come Pleasure. back. This was too much fun. Yeah, I was going to ask, when when do you all want to come back? Is there a specific movie in the future that each of you would like to uh, sort of mark for yourself? How about we all come How about we all come back for Satanic Rites? Let's uh, wrap this thing. Let's get wrapping this thing up. Ah, that's, that is fine by me. Uh, when, you know, it's funny. I'm going to look that up. I don't know when that's going to fall, but I want to say Ooh. that it might be the very next one. I think they knocked those tracks <laughs> out like back to back. Let's see here. Okay, I'm doing this as we record. Just gonna, it's gonna. Somebody, somebody, sing a song. Do, 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 do. It's on oh, October. Dracula. 4th. Dracula. There it is. Yeah, that's our next recording is Satanic Rites. Then we do Kronos, and then Frankenstein versus the monster from hell, and then Seven Golden Vampires. I've got to be on for Kronos. All right, we we will have a full house on Kronos again too. I think, but uh. Yeah, so Satanic Rites, if that's going to be our next one, that will be next Monday at 9.45, if you guys would be up for it. I think I might be able to do that, but I have to, I'll, I'll double check, but yeah. 
I'd, I'll come on for Satanic Rice. That'll be fun. Rock on. I'll have to double check yeah. as well, but I do. I will throw a vote of confidence. It is a good one-two punch. <laughs> these two together. So, <laughs> I like it. Good deal. All right, Paul, Allie, as always, thank you both for co-hosting, and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below, scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks. Thanks so much, and have a great weekend. <laughs>